Greetings from the north, citizens of the world. Welcome to Forum Borealis. Well, it was just a matter of time. Everyone wants a breaking story and to be first out with everything. And you know how I often, tongue-in-cheek, say that the Forum, in contrast, is lost on everything, where all men have gone before, but with our in-depth raiders sweeping up what the others carelessly ignored and left behind. That's true for today, as we finally do the Epstein story. Why, you may ask, so late to the party, hasn't everyone packed up and gone home? Why, yes, at least that's what the corporate media would have you believe, so that's exactly the reason it is incumbent upon us, in the independent media, to keep this story alive and never forget. It is important for many reasons, notwithstanding that this affair has done as much for the awakening to the degree of corruption and control of our brave new world as the pandemic scandals has. It was one of the early omnipresent news stories that got the lockstep uniform spin from the legacy media trying to distract from the essentials whilst cracking down with censorship on the competent and genuine reporting from the indie media. And they are still at it now, having filed it under nothing to see here, everything solved, case closed, move along, trying to bury the story in the archives of history with their uniform silence. Perhaps the most important aspect of it is the political implications of the scandals, because it's not really about Epstein as a person, few tears are shed over him, it's about incredible reach the powers behind him has to get away with this, mirroring the incredible reach he had with his networking and extortion files. And not one single head has rolled from this, except for a couple of the minions under him. All above him has gotten away with it, as well as the clients slash victims of his blackmailing operation, which obviously wasn't his as in a personal project, rather he was the effective tool of several intel agencies, whom we know today beyond a shadow of a doubt, with tons of evidence, is running the corporate media cartels as well as the corporate social media platforms. I mean, it's so brazen, it's in the open. So is it really a wonder that you can't get any substance from them on this? So, we are doing our duty, and here's a preview of our take on it today. Roy Cohn was the guy who I think really... Uh, brought Trump into those circles. Uh, you know, he brought him into contact with people like Rupert Murdoch. And I mean, a lot of uh, politically connected figures. And I also think there's a chance, too, that he might have helped uh, Trump establish ties uh, to the U.S. intelligence services as well. Mm. Uh, I think one of the reasons why Roy Cohn had so much power for a lot of years is he was effectively Hoover's back channel uh, to, the, uh, to the mafia, more or mm. less. Mm. And 
And uh, I think in that capacity, Trump might have worked, you know, as an FBI informant at times as well against the mob. There's been a lot of rumors of that for years, and it might be one of the reasons why he seemed to have had such vigorous support from certain elements within the FBI, especially, I think, around the New York field office. Yeah. I would imagine the octopus is connected to Le Circle. Too. Yeah, yeah. The octopus was sort of a successor of this kind of network. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. And I think Bowman Raj was heavy in both of them. At least it was influencing um, Odessa and Dishpin. Dishpin is still around, by the way. No, it would not surprise me. In some accounts, I mean, people have married kids as young as 12 or 13 years old in these circles and what have you. So there's a lot of this just weird stuff where you have these different families getting together and they're basically marrying their daughters off while they're still under the age of 18 to men that are in their 40s and 50s and who in some cases are even their fucking uncles. Mm. So it's creepy. It's really creepy. The Order of Chang John, it's too open, it's too transparent. It's more like a museum thing that's still around that they are using to, to socialize in. I would say Opus Day, at least in the upper hierarchy, is probably more of a cult too. Yeah, they are definitely a cult with an agenda that they try to implement. Absolutely. So they are more a classical conspiracy player. That's my distinction. Like I would say, yeah, the Knights of Malta are more of like power brokers, whereas Opus Day is just like a straight up cult with a more of yeah. a fanatical agenda. You know, like the, the Bohemian Grove, right? Oh, yeah. 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 So it's the same thing as the, the Knights of St. John and many Mason orders. It doesn't mean that the Bohemian Grove is a player that is scheming and implementing stuff from their own uh, like ideology. It's more like we're an advanced uh, society club for the elite. Come here, have a vehicle to do your stuff. Right. And then people come from maybe Opus Dei <laughs> or from Skull and Bones, because Skull and Bones is more like uh, an influencer. Again, I think it's just a vehicle like um, Bohemian Grove, but in Skull and Bones, from the reports we have, they are being influenced. And I think a similar scheme to the Honey Trap, you have to, what is it, be nude while you're being filmed and confess all your secrets. That's a way, I think already in Skull and Bones, they start getting control over you. Well, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's like a common method too. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, Propaganda Dewey did something similar where you had to basically turn over like blackmail material on yourself and people right. that you knew to join the order. Yeah. He was also looking at basically that research that was claiming the blood from older uh, or from younger mice was helping rejuvenate older blood so, or younger, older mice. Oh, the one in, in California? Yeah, 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 yeah. Pure, pure. You, what happened with that? They literally found out how to switch off the aging process. And I was saying this research, although it's done in, the pub, in public institutions, is going to go black. We're never going to see any benefit from it unless you're a Bill Gates. Yeah, I think it was like right around the time Peter Thiel got interested in us. <laughs> so he, he's the one who, who, who swapped that up. That's what I would guess. Damn, you know what that means? It means that we'll, we'll see people like Bezos and uh, Musk and Thiel around as they now look for hundreds of years. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't surprise me, man. And again, to kind of bring this back to Epstein, you know, this was the kind of stuff that he was looking at in the last stage of his life. That's right. He was a transhumanist too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was. 
That's uh, essential, man. And that's why I keep emphasizing this is the part about Epstein that people should be looking at mm. and why he was getting into this. Because again, you know, Epstein had access to all of these black funds. And I agree with what you're saying. I think the sort of tech dreams, the belief that they could reanimate dead flesh and all this stuff just wasn't really practical. But there were things that you could do in a genetic level. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think also gene splicing is another thing yeah. uh, that they were looking at. And, and now the gene manipulating the entire world. With, yeah, exactly. That whole world is coming to an end, essentially, yeah. which it is. It's unraveling before our very eyes. Yeah, but still, uh, Assange is, is being extradited. What's unraveling before our eyes is the power games. They're not able to keep hidden anymore. Many people can see more than ever what's going on. But in terms of practicality, they ha it seems to me they have more power than ever before. The Epstein case is, is point-in case. Just the way they get away with it. Well, yeah, I'm not saying that. I mean, you're definitely right in terms of like how rigged that the official system is. Yeah. You're correct about that. But on the flip side of the coin... We're getting to the point, though, I think, where there is a very real chance that, I mean, people are going to go out and start shooting some of these veeps. And I think they themselves are also concerned about that. Yeah, but, but I don't think that will happen. Uh, they are probably concerned, but that's why they're doing the divide and conquer thing, right? I think there will be a civil war b before before America. I mean, I'm just saying you would think that Davos, you know, and I mean, that whole section of elites would be invincible now. This is sort of the heart of the neoliberal right. order. I mean, you've got people like Eric Schmidt from Google, who's built a lot of this control infrastructure. Yeah to manage the plebs. But they have to cancel their their annual confab at Davos this year because of the amount of death threats that they were getting. Really? Yeah. Oh my God, this is great. They have no understanding of what dealing with full-blown civil disobedience from an angry public is truly like. I think, you know, some of them at least are starting to come to a realization, though, that it's going to get ugly. I mean, this is, I think, a big reason why so many of them are buying up uh, land in New Zealand and um, a lot of far-flung corners of the earth. Yeah. <laughs> Already Bush started to do that. Hear me now, quote me later, I don't think anything compromising will come out of the Maxwell case. I mean, they haven't finished her off yet. I guess she's protected then. I guess they think they can get away with it, that she doesn't have to to give up any real uh, information. Although I did hear the other day that both Clinton and Trump was mentioned in the latest court case. There's a lot of other issues right now that the public at large are preoccupied with. And if Ghislaine were to suddenly commit suicide or something like that, that would actually probably renew interest yeah. in the Epstein <laughs> thing. So That's I right. think for all parties involved at this point, it's, it's best if she just goes away quietly. I wouldn't shock me if she does do a very light prison sentence. Um, in, in a luxury prison, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In a luxury prison. I'm sure Ghislaine's probably been offered some kind of deal like that. Just, you know, hold out. But her angle seems to be, I was a victim too of action. Yeah, but yeah, and I don't think that she's going to face any kind of serious legal consequences. And I think that that's kind of the... The hope. I mean, they might, like I said, make a decent, the sentence initially might at least seem like it was an attempt to seriously punish her, but I seriously doubt she's going to actually, you know, serve any significant amount of time or anything like that. 
But yeah, I just, I think that's one of the big reasons why she's probably not going to suddenly commit suicide or anything to that effect. Because at this point, I mean, nobody's really paying attention to this stuff. I, I think a lot of people would just assume this goes away quietly while we're distracted with uh, runaway inflation yeah, yeah, and yeah. World War Three and you know, that kind of stuff. Now, our guest is as stealthy as myself. So this presentation will be short and to the point. Stephen William Schneider, also known as Recluse, launched his now cult-famed blog, Visop, that's V-I-S-U-P, back in 2010, the heyday of blogs, sharing with the world his immense knowledge and insight into all things uber-obscure, like on deep politics particularly Intel affairs, black projects, power networks, assassinations, corruptions, and public secrets, like on cults and secret societies, for instance, the Manson family, Opus Dei, Order of Malta, Colonia Dignidad, like on high strangeness, exemplified by such topics as entheogenes and UFOs, the Nine, close encounters of the Psyop kind, and twilight languages, like on unknown and bizarre aspects of music, media and film, mysteries, analysis, you name it. He is also the producer, writer and host of the acclaimed podcast The Farm, which was originally launched in 2013 by Frank Zero, but which Recluse joined a few years later to expand into audio the topics of culture, parapolitics and high weirdness in all its many forms. Although his podcasts are very different in style from the forum, there are several similar traits. Not only is he an interacting host, who also does long-form and in-depth, but many of the regular subject matters are also similar to ours. The farm produces quality weekly shows for free, while patrons get two additional exclusive shows each month. Schneider has developed a novel approach to parapolitics that emphasizes both hard research with a reluctant acceptance of Fortean currents. In 2020, he entered into another media when he published the book Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, Post-War Nazis, Mercenaries and Other Secret History co-authored with Frank Zero. And later that year, he published another book, A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment, which is first of a trilogy. He is heavily focusing on writing these days and has a forthcoming book dealing with the history of myth-making, discordianism, Q, and state-sanctioned behavioral modification programs. Stephen has also been a lecturer at some conventions and been interviewed by a million other podcasts. And I discovered him through his guest appearance at Skeptico and Eon Byte Gnostic Radio. So welcome him for his first appearance here for a subject that, despite writing about it, he hasn't really covered in his own podcast yet. All the better for you guys. And by the way... Epstein didn't kill himself. Welcome to Forum Borealis, uh, Stephen. Yes, sir. Uh, or recluse, I should probably call you. That's what most people know you as. 
Either is fine with me, sir. Yeah, from your show that we're going to get back to. Now, I was tipped off by my friend Alex Akiris that you have made a book or part one, I guess, of a book on the Epstein thing. Yes, sir. And I always wanted to cover that thing because, um, well, first of all, because it's it's probably one of those conspiracies that has helped getting sleepwalkers to realize there is such a thing as conspiracies. <laughs> we all remember it's not long ago. Everybody was expecting him to hang himself in the prison. <laughs> <laughs> and then it happened, but they didn't succeed. And then uh, we were just counting down, okay, but he's back now, okay. He'll die next time, and he did. And it was just, it's just overboard. Like I said to Alex, they don't care anymore. They don't care to try to make it plausible. And then I tried to get Whitney Webb on. Are you familiar with Whitney Webb? Oh, yeah. Brilliant research uh, and brilliant researcher. But I don't know what happened. She said yes first, and then she evaporated. Uh, and uh, then I stumbled over you, and your stuff seems to be uh, at the same level. So first things first, uh, your book that we are basing this show on, it's called A Special Relationship. You call it book one. Have you released another book or? Are no, no, book? not yet. Um, yeah, no, I was uh, essentially waiting for more of like the Epstein stuff to play out uh, before. I mean, that would probably be the major focus, like on the third book. The first book was sort of laying the foundation for the ring that I think later came out uh, to the public eye when Epstein scandal broke. Right. Yeah. So what I think we could do today then is that we go through uh, some of the stuff in book one and some of the stuff that hasn't made it to books yet. Sure. And uh, if that uh, entices my listeners who, who lo loves books, then uh, we'll just have to send them to your author site and to your podcast. And we're going to list all that at the end of this show. Okay. No, I, I have to give you kudos for your high um, knowledge level which makes your shows very entertaining because it's similar to mine. That's why I do these shows like this, because when you have two informed people talking, it's going to be another kind of discussion when, from when there's one clueless guy and, and someone with all the answers. So yeah. that's the format we chose ourselves and we stuck with it. And I think most of my listeners will be very open to your shows okay. because you seem to have a variety of topics like we do. You seem to have uh, coming from a similar place as we do. Uh, we, we have probably a little better like production. We do more like editing and stuff. But um, yeah, I don't think they will have a problem uh, going over to the farm. That's the name of it, right? The farm? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yes. No, so we, we do a lot of shows uh, with similar topics as, as you. The l last one I listened to uh, of yours was um, International Fascism. Uh, part one or part two? Uh, I think it was part one. Okay. I didn't know part two was out yet. Uh, I was particularly interested in that because we've done, we have a huge series where we track down what we call, well, it has different names. Some call it the Bormann Brotherhood. We call it the Bormann Reich. But it's basically, after the Second World War, there was the Wall Street fascists, who I'm convinced killed off the wheelchair president, um, FDR. Oh, FDR. 
Yeah. Now, the Wall Street fascists took over America after FDR, whether he was finished off or not. And there's plenty of uh, circumstantial evidence that he was. And um, I mean, for God's sakes, he died a couple of days before Hitler, Hitler's alleged suicide. And the thing is, huge values were looted in Europe, and it was all uh, exported uh, from a plant from 43, all ruled by Bormann. And in addition, 750 companies and untold billions. And this, this is a long story. I can't recap everything now. But sure. this is the story we've been tracking because uh, parts of the Nazis and parts of the Anglo-American elite fused after World War II. They got rid of the most rabiat anti-Semitism and the fetish of uniforms and all that stuff. Sure, those identity markers were off, but the fascism remained. Yes. And the fascism was always there on the, on the British, uh, on the Anglo-American side too. So they just fused and they've been running the show ever since. And Dulce is a part of this and the deep state and all that stuff. I saw Dulce's figure in your book, by the way. Oh, yeah. I'm probably going <laughs> to. Ask about that. So that's us uh, chasing the international fascism. No, it's interesting you uh, you say that because it's um uh, I see the Epstein book I wrote the first one anyway is kind of a part of I mean it wasn't intended as such but I sort of see it now as a part of a trilogy of books that have come out. Uh, the last couple of years. The first one would be um, the Scorzini Papers by Ralph Gannis, and then there's my book, and um, then there's the book that just recently came out by Hank Alborelia, uh, A Coup in Dallas. Um, I know this sounds really pretentious, but... No, hang, uh, hang on, the Scorzini, is that Otto Scorzini? Uh, for me? Uh, the, the first book, Scorsini something. Yes, Otto Scorsini, yes, 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 Scarface. Yeah, he's a deep player in, in the busters that we are tracking down. Oh, yes, he absolutely is. And we'll see, essentially, as I see it, I feel like Ganas, Alberelli, and I were all chronicling the same network in these three respective books. I think Gannis's book tended to look more at what uh, Scorzini and the, you know, the straight up Nazis were doing in the post-war years. Uh, my book tends to look more at things from the British perspective. Right. And then Hank's book uh, kind of goes more into the American side of things. So I think it's, it's really interesting if you're to read these three works together, you're going to get a really nuanced take yeah. on this network and what these different powers were buying for with it yeah now I, I need to get on the authors of those two other books i'm not aware I, i'm using traditional sources like um, paul manning oh yeah, Ladislav yeah, yeah. farago i mean manning's and of book course is... lyndon larouche sorry i mean manning's book is really helpful larouche i'm very dubious of for a lot of reasons but um of course the... but but the larouche people have done great yeah he did have good researchers yeah, yeah there's no question webster topley but it's like with uh the gannis book gannis actually got a huge uh cachet of scorzini's papers i mean these wow. were based directly on scorzini's personal papers and then with the coup in Dallas, Hank had access to the Scorzini papers from Gannis, and then he also uh, was using, um, I think it was a notebook he got from one of his own sources. It was the uh, widow of, uh, what's his name, Jean Lefitte, who was a, right. uh, a right. member of Le Cagoule during the World War II era, or pre-World War II era, and then later he went to work for the CIA uh, during the uh, Cold War. He was close to George Hunter White of uh, Operation Midnight Climax Infamy. Of course. <laughs> Okay, the, look, these two uh, authors, could you do me the favor of sending me links to the books? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are you, are you in touch with them too? I didn't. Hank uh, passed away in 2019. Uh, I was in contact with Hank. Um, uh, it's actually, yeah, it's, he was actually, I think more than anyone, the person who really got me to take my research um, seriously. I think he had originally contacted me and not the other way around and probably 2014, 2013, something like that. Right. Uh, and it was after I had just, this was back when I was just doing my blog, visaview.com or .blogspot.com. I hadn't written any books or done a podcast or anything at this point. And I had just done, I think, a series of uh, blogs on, you know, some of this artichoke and MK Ultra stuff. And I had gotten a bit into the uh, monarch stuff. And uh, Hank had uh, written me an email kind of scolding me about taking the monarch thing uh, seriously. And had essentially... <laughs> told me that i was too good of a researcher to fall into that right, um, right, so right. that was the first time i had actually kind of realized i was decent at this and was just like wow hank abaronia actually took the time to send me an email about this so right, right. um yeah it was a uh, really cool but, but that other chap ganis are you in touch with him I've tried to get in contact with Gannis a few times, but unfortunately I have not managed to do so. But yes, I would love to talk to Ralph Gannis at some point, if at all possible. Okay, if I manage, I'm going to throw him over to you too. Mm, I would definitely appreciate that. <laughs> I think we would get, I, we would get around really well because he also has an interest in um, Jesse James and so that whole kind of notion of the continuation ah. of the Confederacy, uh, Confederacy yeah. after the Civil, the American Civil yeah, War. Yeah, that's very which, interesting too. That's actually kind of a topic I'm interested in as well. So um, me too, me too. I mean, that has that has branches to huge stuff like the Golden Knights or whatever they call themselves. Yeah, the, the Knights of the Golden Circle, yeah. and then. Well, see, it later actually sort of got into some of the stuff that I've chronicled a lot with the Order of St. John, too. Um, my yeah. research partner and I, Keith, had tracked down uh, this former SOSJ member who claimed that he had uh, worked for Jesse James IV or something like that. Uh, and that was, you know, kind of part of this whole netherworld where they were going to get this Confederate gold and this uh, yeah. this Japanese gold that was looted from the Second World War. and Just insane stuff. Yeah, it's it's a huge story. Definitely. But let's start uh, today with the uh, Abstain show. Okay, okay. So, uh, but uh, warning, I'm I'm a low information uh, on on this uh, Abstain thing. Of course, I know the mainstream stuff in the news, but um, it's not actually something I have uh, delved very deep into. So, um, but I'm guessing much of the contextual things is known to me, but. Um, there may be some rookie questions on my part because of that. Sure. Yeah, so you won't. So, where would you say the Epstein story really starts? Well, that was, um, for me, definitely a tricky part as well. <clears throat> you know, we could probably go back uh, several centuries if we really wanted to. But uh, when I tried to find the most logical starting point, it would be uh, William Stevenson. And I had to give a little bit of a background about Intrepid and sort of like the network that had spawned uh, what was known as the British Security Coordination. Um, okay, so, you know, kind of going back to the First World War, you have it and it ends. And then um, a lot of the American intelligence services were demobilized. And 
and the British wound down a good amount of their operations as well. Yeah. And this led to kind of this informal network that was largely based around these uh, these gentlemen's clubs. Uh, one of them in New York was known as the Room and then also like the Travelers Club or it might have been the Explorers Club. I can't remember the name of which ones exactly. But several of these different networks were used uh, as kind of an informal intelligence group. Are you, are you familiar with uh, James Corbett? Uh, he had a brilliant documentary about such a, I think that must be one of those circles. I forgot the naming of it. Of course, all these names are just nicknames. They rarely have a, a formal name, but Cecil Rhodes was involved, you know, the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, part definitely there was overlap with some of the Rhodes group. Um, yeah, they had that secret society. I'm trying to remember now the name of it. Um, but yeah, they had kind of like, you know, over time, I think it kind of became known as the Milner Group and Milner's Kindergarten. Right. Of course, after Rhodes' death. But yeah, in the British end, you're kind of getting into some of those circles as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, and this was how the British sort of kept an eye on things like in the interwar years. And then uh, once the mobilization started for the Second World War, a lot of these assets were brought back to the fore. So getting into the American end, um, you have William Stevenson, who was sent to the United States. I think it was like around the late 30s, early 40s, before the U.S. had even gotten into the war to start setting up an intelligence uh, service there in North America. On behalf of the British? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Though I think he actually uh, oversaw essentially the entire Western Hemisphere, though he was mainly based out of uh, North America. But in this you know, outfit became the British Security Coordination, and it had uh, very close ties to uh, the Special Operations Executive specifically. The SOE was uh, really sort of the basis for like a lot of the you know Special Operations Forces, and especially like the Stay Behind Networks and that type of thing. They did uh, operate. Operation Jedburgh with uh, the Office of Strategic Services and sort of an early version of the Special Air Services uh, to set up these stay-behinds in France and other parts of uh, Europe. Yeah, but wasn't that, that, that was after Second World War, right? Well, no, no, this is uh, during the Second World War. So, okay, we're getting ready to do invasion of continental Europe. And what they did is they sent these uh, special operations executives into the Nazi-held uh, territories. And these would be, well, the, usually they were mixed teams, but there were a fair amount of special forces guys with them, and then radio operators, demolition specialists, all this other kind of stuff. And they would link up with the French resistance groups or whatever, the Dutch ones, and they would start building up these paramilitary forces that could be used to attack the Germans right, from the rear, right, essentially, right. while the invasion was going on. Yeah. And that was the basis for the later stay-behind networks that emerged. Who was flooded with Nazis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, see, and the Nazis were doing kind of the same thing, too. I mean, Scorzini, um, you know, the gentleman we were talking about earlier, Otto Scorzini, Scarface, he was doing kind of a similar thing on the Eastern Front, for instance, with some of the Ukrainian forces and that type of thing against the Russians. So, yeah, when we got into um, the aftermath of the Second World War, you had a lot of these uh, SOE forces teaming with people like Otto Scorzini so that they could establish these stay behind groups right. uh, in different regions. And then, um, you know, you also had the Kagul who were a big part of this. They were a uh, French uh, secret society, a uh, kind of proto-fascist group that operated in France during the 1930s. Could, could you repeat the name? Le Kagul. Uh, the Cogliards. I'm probably butchering the pronunciation to some extent. Okay. I apologize to any French listeners. 
I believe it meant the hood or something to that effect, if I'm not mistaken. Hmm. So anyway, um, they were a kind of proto-fascist group or, you know, at least one that kind of got going in the 30s. And uh, anyway, they were a paramilitary force. They carried out a couple of uh, French terror campaigns around the Paris area and were, you know, basically brought to the heel by the French government around the late 1930s. Uh, once the Nazi or, you know, once the uh, German uh, Germans started the invasion, a lot of these guys were released from prison so that they could be used on uh, the French uh, forces. And then after the Nazis prevailed, uh, they were in an interesting situation. Some of them went to work for the Germans. Some of them, you know, went to work for the Allied intelligence services, but they were still, you know, in contact with one another. And um, in a lot of ways, this uh, you know, created a situation where in the post-war years, Le Cagoule was you know, arguably more powerful than they had ever been because they had so many connections in the French state and were essentially from people who had been. Involved. So they were friendly with Charles de Gaulle on his um, faction. Uh, How is the name spelled? Charles de Gaulle. He's 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 like he was the French um, president after the Second World War. Yes, I believe so. Well, specifically, yeah, he, he, he's like a war hero, but he he represented the conservative opposition to the Nazis. It would have been closer, I think, to what's his name, Anton Panay, specifically, because mm. Le Sokal, um, which became like another one of these, you know, really big post-war fascist groups. Uh, you know, the French component, Jean Violet, uh, was an ex-Cogulard, and uh, they got some funding as well from several former uh, Kugul members as well. So Le mm. Sokal definitely sort of grew out of that. And a lot of the Cogliards were used to set up the French stay-behinds in the immediate aftermath aftermath of the Second World War. And ironically, they were working directly with Otto Scorzini. A lot of these guys were trained in Spain and uh, kind of served as the basis of a paramilitary force for a lot of years. Yeah, yeah. This was this was the golden age of spooks, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had the dichotomy between Soviet and the Western world. And uh, in addition, you had hidden players like you know the Bowman Brotherhood that I, I, I rambled on about, and and yes, other did. networks. This one being one, I, I know of course the French was uh, in until um, uh, the French CIA, so to speak, was very advanced back in the day. Also the British, and eventually even even the Mossad came onto the area, although a little later, but. Okay, so we have this Intel uh, networks, uh, spooks milieus. Okay, okay. So getting back to Stevenson, okay, and his importance. Yeah. So he comes to the U.S. to set up uh, the British security coordination, and uh, he befriends William Donovan and helps him very much establish the OSS. And um, the OSS was very much modeled on the British security coordination, which um, I think is significant. Yeah. Um, in terms of like how a lot of the British intelligence services were done at the time, they tended to be, you know, really specialized, like MI6 did foreign intelligence, MI5 did your counterintelligence stuff and also stuff in the colonies. The special operations executive did the paramilitary stuff. 
uh, what Stevenson was trying to do with the British security coordination was to bring all of those things under one banner. You know, you would have one stop shop and you would do foreign intelligence, you would do counterintelligence and you would do uh, special operations all in one agency. And that was uh, the model that Donovan used for the OSS. And uh, essentially, that was what we tried to do with the CIA, though uh, the military has always been reluctant uh, to give uh, too much control to the CIA over the military forces. But I don't want to get sidetracked too much. But Stevenson, in a lot of ways, was the architect of, uh, you know, modern American intelligence services. He was the guy who had really uh, provided the vision for how Donovan uh, set up the Office of Strategic Services. And, you know, they really, in a lot of ways, were sister organizations uh, prior to, you know, the OSS being greenlit. Donovan was basically running an informal network uh, with Stevenson's help. And uh, this was uh, previously, I mean, this had been uh, carried out by, oh gosh, it was a member of Vincent Astor, uh, which again is interesting as well. The Astors, of course, are very- Are, are, you, are you aware of the nine? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, this, I think it was his sister, if I remember correctly, who was tied into all this stuff with the nine. Yeah, that was, that, plus it's an older group, but- um, when you talk about these names now, then uh, we, we are getting awfully close to what I call the Wall Street fascists, which, of course... Yeah, yeah. You know, they're... Well, absolutely. Yeah, adults. Because, I mean, you know, kind of across the pond, you had the Astor family, um, you know, who were part of, you know, like we were kind of getting at the Rhodes group, the Milner group, whatever you want to call it, that sort of network that eventually led to the Council on Foreign Relations and a right, lot of this right. other stuff, and then kind of Wall Street counterparts. So, yeah, yeah, very much so. so, so Sullivan and Cromwell, mm-hmm. those people. And I mean, Donovan, of course, famously was a Wall Street lawyer himself. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he worked. Was all- he buddy with with Dulles? Uh, they had a complicated relationship, um, especially sort of in the uh, during the Second World War. Um, yeah, uh, Donovan had a lot of suspicion about Dulles, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Had <laughs> for good reason. <laughs> yes, for good reason. Essentially, Donovan, you could argue pretty compellingly, was an agent of the British. Mm. And then conversely, Dulles arguably was an agent of the Nazi regime. So, yeah, yeah they didn't always see eye to eye on, like, the foreign factions that they were working for. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> There was that kind of dynamic, but like the Nazis and the British, they kind of seem to have hashed things out in the aftermath of the war or the uh, the greater good or whatever. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, if you ever listen to some of our shows, I recommend uh, the shows about Borman. For example, we have one called Operation James Bond, hmm. which is the whole James Bond thing is taken from uh, reality kind of. That was the code name of getting Bormann out of Germany. Oh, yeah. And, well, you got to remember, too, Ian Fleming was uh, actually a good friend of uh, William Stevenson's, too. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, <gasps> I think sense. they both ended up living in Jamaica um, in the post-war years. <laughs> Fleming was based out of Jamaica, right? Of course they did. <laughs> so. Oh, then then you have to live life. Yeah, Lawrence DeMello, brilliant British uh, investigative author and journalist. You may want her on your show. She's... She's uh, currently tracking down some uh, monkey business with um, Churchill. She thinks he, he he was more of a genius than we've given him credit for because he did some stuff 
that is still um, resonating today. Okay. Uh, he had a big hand in how all this developed. But that's another story. Let's uh, rewind now to... So so we are at the f- in the 50s, I'm guessing, <clears throat> with well, Stevenson. Well, let me finish up with Stevenson, because yeah. there's a few other things about Stevenson that I need to point out that are significant mm-hmm. here. Okay, so another thing with Stevenson, this has never really been proven definitively, but there have been allegations for years that while Stevenson was uh, working in the United States, he had arranged for elements of organized crime to assassinate American citizens. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was part of his activities working against the church. As you do, as an Antilles book, of course. Yeah, go on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so this was an interesting element here. It kind of brought a component of organized crime into some of the operations that he was doing. And this might have also served as the basis for uh, the American intelligence services use later of uh, elements of the mafia to carry out assassinations as well. Right. Now, the other thing about Stevenson is he appears to have used sexual blackmail to compromise several prominent Americans, including Arthur Vandenberg, who was a U.S. senator and uh, one of the major people who had helped forgive the the British debts for the Lyndon Lease program in the post-war years. So that's kind of another interesting thing. Um, And specifically, they had tried to target a couple of uh, the foreign embassies here in the U.S. The French one was one, and then there was, um, I think it was the Spanish one had been the other one. Of course. Yeah. So if you want to make a honey trap, direct it at the French and the Spanish. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> You're yeah, gonna no, win. absolutely. <laughs> uh, they even had this one oh, lady, gosh, I cannot remember her name now, but she was yeah, she's one of the most storied sex espionage uh, agents ever. But I mean, they had basically brought her. I think I heard about her. Yeah. 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 They brought her in. Um, yeah. Specifically for the French caper. I think the the guy that she had seduced was so obsessed with her that he ended up marrying her later, even while she was still continuing some of her other work. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they went really all out with this. I mean, there's, you know, they, what has come out already is definitely pretty shocking. And I'm sure, you know, I mean, there was a lot of other hanky panky going on that'll never see the light of day. Uh, So anyway, uh, these guys were well versed in using sexual blackmail. So now, okay, we're getting into the post-war years. So in the immediate aftermath, um, the U S and the uh, British governments are looking to downsize uh, these intelligence services. And a lot of people, you know, like Donovan and Stevenson were concerned about that. I mean, you know, did you really want all of these quote unquote priceless assets just going off into the sunset, especially Mm -hmm. with the Soviet threat and what have you. So, what they decided to do was basically revive this sort of pre, uh, you know, interwar years network of these uh, informal intelligence services. But instead of using like these, you know, kind of loose affiliation of club of uh, gentlemen's clubs and so forth, they decided to use corporations. Right. Uh, the first one was the British American Canadian Corporation, the BACC, which uh, Stevenson had helped set up with some other people. I believe Sir Charles Hamber was a uh, part of this. 
he had headed the special operations executive at some point uh, during the Second World War, a lot of other major British spooks. And then from there, shortly after came the World Commerce Corporation, which eventually brought out uh, the BACC. And the World Commerce Corporation was headed for a time by William Donovan himself. It brought mm. in a bunch of other spies. It got funding from a lot of major American families with intelligence connections like the Mellons and the Rockefellers. And there is a lot of evidence. All, all these are old blood. Mellon, mm -hmm. Astor, Rockefeller. Yeah, I mean, this is like all old blood. I mean, like the Hambro family, for instance, have been one of the leading British banking dynasties for years. You know, I mean, they were involved with yeah. the Bank of England and this other stuff. So, yeah, old money. on both sides of the Atlantic, you're getting a lot of these old blood families that are helping set up the World Commerce Corporation along with this network of veterans from the OSS, from the Special Operations Executive, from the British Security Coordination and what have you. And then there was another element of it. So... And this is one your listeners, from what I gather, would probably be familiar with. Mm -hmm. So around 43, 44, the Nazis, you know, come to the realization that the war is essentially lost. And they start transferring a lot of these uh, assets, gold and so forth, out of Germany for the post-war revival. Right. Now, a lot of this, or I shouldn't say a lot, but I mean, a fair amount of it ended up going to Spain and uh, it was controlled by a company called Sofindus. That's uh, an abbreviation. I'm not going to try to butcher what the actual <laughs> Spanish name of it was. But, right. uh, it was abbreviated as Sofindus. The guy who headed it had been an asset of uh, the SD, which was uh, the SS's intelligence service. I cannot remember his name off the top of my head, but um, this company continued in the post-war years i think i mean it had been transferred like 80 tons of gold or something at various points right, i mean right. it controlled a phenomenal amount of assets eventually so find us was consumed by the world commerce corporation around 1950 um Okay, which is really interesting because the World Commerce Corporation would base itself out of Spain. And uh, one of the agents that they hired to work uh, in all this, you know, glorious activity was Odo Scorzini. Mm. So, so Findus was, or Scorzini was basically an agent of uh, the World Commerce Corporation for a time through So Findus. Mm. And all of this is kind of unfolding against the backdrop of the early stay behind networks being set up, like we were talking about before with Le Cagoule and the stuff being done in France and Germany. And this is, you know, one of the things that Gannis is kind of arguing in his book, the Scorzini Papers, is that the World Commerce Corporation was kind of the group that was being used to set up these early stay behinds around 46, 47, when the British were downsizing their intelligence services and when the OSS had been disbanded. And I definitely think there's a lot to this. Yeah, it was called Operation Gladio, right? Well, Gladio was um, the Italian component of it. And that's the only, uh, that was only a part of the Italian component as well. Right. That was the one that leaked. Mm -hmm. We don't actually. Yeah, because we had, we had, we had those stay behind groups here too in in Norway. Yeah, they were all over Western Europe. Yeah, NATO basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, even in some countries, there was one set up in Spain, for instance, well before it became like a NATO country. And Turkey. Mm -hmm. So I mean, they definitely existed. And then we tried to do something similar in Eastern Europe. Uh, I think it was called Operation Bloodstone. You know, where we were sending like all of these Ukrainian Nazis and stuff back in there right. to try to 
set up stay behinds that didn't work out that great though but um you know we were trying to sort of do well don't say that now they're running uh, ukraine yeah 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 well the (laughs) the whole thing with that was really complicated because uh, so many of the those networks were so heavily penetrated by the kgb and right right it's a, it's a very murky netherworld, certainly. Yeah, KGB wasn't completely incompetent back no. in the day. So, yeah. But, yeah, so really there was a vast network of these groups being set up in the 40s and the post, you know, in the aftermath of the Second World War. And essentially that's why uh, we created the American Army Special Forces, the United States Army Special Forces. Their whole purpose at the beginning was that we would have this, you know, this glorious confrontation with the Soviet Union and we would nuke a couple of their cities and so forth. And then we would parachute the Green Berets into the, you know, desolate wasteland and they would link up with these these paramilitary forces that our Ukrainian Nazi brothers had set up and then they would finish off what was left of the Soviet forces for us. Crazy, crazy visions, yeah. So, yeah, this is all kind of going on, you know, around this time frame. And it seems like a good chunk of it was being set up by this, you know, whole World Commerce Corporation network. And a fair amount of the guys who worked for the WCC and senior levels like Ricardo Sicri and uh, John Pepper had been directly involved in Stevenson's uh, blackmail operations, you know, of a sexual nature during the second world war. So, I mean, that's also sort of raised uh, some interesting questions about all of this. Mm. I mean, of course, when you get into, you know, these stay behind networks, as a lot of people who have studied this know, it plays heavily into the stuff that went on in Belgium, uh, specifically with the Detroit affair. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that indicates that Detroit was linked to the stay behind groups in Belgium. And, you know, this also sort of goes into the whole thing with the Sarkow as well, um, you know, which is also very much tied into this. Um, in theory, Le Cercao was set up as an offshoot of the Bilderberg group around 52-53 to right. sort of work on Franco-German reproachment, which I think is nonsense. Um, the, the five people who have been cited as the founders of Le Cercao were um, Conrad Adenauer and Franz Joseph Strauss from Germany, uh, Jean Violent and Anton Panay from France, and uh, what's his name? Julio... Adrenata, I think he was the one. That first guy, that first guy, I think he's tied to Bix, Bank of International Settlements. Quite possibly. I do know that there were some ties to that. Um, But okay, so it's now been revealed many years later, Adenauer and Franz Joseph Strauss in Germany, both personally controlled stay behind uh, armies in right. Germany in West Germany during the cold war. And it seems like in case, I think of Strauss, he had also been working with Otto Scorsini uh, in setting up some of these as well. Scorsini definitely had involvement in the German ones, but these guys were aware of them and had direct control over them. Mm. Jean Violet, as I had just gotten to before, was an ex cogliard The Kugul were the backbone of the French stay behinds. Violet almost surely was aware of what his uh, brother Cogliards were up to. And then Giulio Adronata, or however it's pronounced, he was the guy who controlled the Italian ones. 
there had been an Italian stay behind that was called the ring or something like that, that dated from uh, Mussolini's reign that right. was transferred on to the later intelligence service. Were, were they involved in the propaganda due scandal? I think this eventually, yeah, became the propaganda due scandal because that was tied into all this and the Cow yeah. as well. Yeah. But um, I'm going to have a show just on that because it's such a huge story. Yeah, it's fascinating. And it's still playing out. Yeah. But basically, all of the founders of the Cirque Hell that I've been able to determine aside from Panay were involved with the Stay Behind networks in some capacity, which makes me think that the reason why they had set up the Cirque Hell was essentially to direct a lot of these Stay Behind armies. Because as you sort of go on, I mean, almost all of the major members were tied into this stuff. Mm. In the case of the Belgian network, the Le Cirque Hell guys were very deeply involved in them. One of them was uh, Benoit, I think his name was, the Black Prince or something. No, the Black Baron. The Black Prince was in Italy. Uh, this was the Black Baron. And, uh, yes, definitely another Nazi collaborator. Surprise, surprise. And then there was VDB, uh, the one guy who had been the politician for a lot of years in Belgium. But these guys were later implicated in the Detroit scandal as well. Specifically, I think in the case of uh, Benoit, uh, they had argued that his estate had been used to like hunt children on or something like that. Jeez. And, you know, I mean, a lot of this stuff sounds incredible. But the thing is, Franz Joseph Strauss he was in contact with Colonia Dignidad in Chile. I was just going there. I was just going there. Colonia Dignidad chose that this was already an established. Yeah, they, they were, and this was all tied into the Le Cercal network. So right, you right. already are seeing this evidence of this use of sexual blackmail, specifically involving children, being tied in with a lot of these stay-behind networks, which I think... And, and don't forget, don't forget, uh, the Catholic Church was big in the rat lines. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, the case- and involved with the South American people, and, and the Catholic Church has been involved in especially homosexual pedophilia for a long well, time. Well, also, too, I should point out with Le Cirque how, like, um, the founding members, besides, uh, you know, overseeing the stay behinds, they were pretty much all members of either Opus Dei or the Sovereign Military Order of, of Malta. So, yeah. yes, it was also very much like a Catholic network in the early years. Just just uh, keep listening up to speed. So, Opus Dei is a fascist Catholic, a pseudo- spiritual group that is really i mean they own so much in the world if you buy like a comic like lucky luke or asterix you're paying opus day <laughs> oh yeah so and and the order of saint john the maltese order um of course they go back to the roots with the templars we've had shows about this so people are aware also well they're still present in malta i don't think they're present in in greece anymore though they used to have like city states yeah yeah it was it was cyprus and Rome. they were the knights yeah. of the sovereign knights of jerusalem and cyprus and Rome. but they're still a player in that it's a typical brotherhood you join even more so than masons if you are either an elite or if you are like an intel networks because uh, the thing is, yeah, there are members who are just into it for, you know, an advanced dinner club or whatever. But you know that you're going to meet people there that you can do business with or that you can do monkey business with, <laughs> if you're Intel. 
or that you can just see and be seen with, connect with, uh, nobles, whatever. Okay. So, so it's it's like a sitting. It doesn't mean that the order of this is my take though. It doesn't mean that the order of Malta, the order of Saint John, is controlling the world. It just means that it's like a sitting duck. It's like an apparatus. It's like a venue where people who control the world, some of those representatives are in those circles. Yeah, kind of. That's how it works. But, you know, many simpletons, they see two facts connected together and they think it's a causality <laughs> just because there's a correlation. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah. So I want to make that clear. But Opus D, more so than St. John, I think actually is a player in that their visions are being implemented. You see what I mean? That's a difference. Oh, yeah. Opus D isn't in a society club where anyone can get access. It's much more of a classical secret society with agenda well, actually i i think the knights of malta are more because i'm not mistaken i think you actually have to be of like aristocratic blood to even be brought into the knights of malta unless you're insanely rich and i think they did change it for the americans where like if you donated a certain amount of money or something like that they would consider bringing you into the order but um i mean a lot of the people yeah it depends which branch you're talking about. Like, do you have a Protestant version? For, well, yeah, for you have like, okay, you, you, I'm talking about the official sovereign military order of Malta, because yes, in the United States, you also have the whole netherworld of the sovereign orders of St. John, yeah. which are these, you know, and then of course you have also the British versions and yeah, uh, it's sort of like akin to the Catholic Church and the Wandering Bishop. You have the official yeah. Catholic Church, and then you have all of these schismatic branches that mm. claim to be following the true faith. And it's the same thing with these different Knights of Malta. You have the official- The bullshit churches that nobody attends. And we had a show with it, uh, with Peter Levand on this, because he's been big on on uh, that stuff and they intersect a lot too a lot of these yeah. wandering bishops are also knights and these pseudo chivalric orders and what have you yep, so yep. It, they're kind of mirrors of each other it's rather fascinating actually but, but what i'm saying is that saint john the order of saint john it's too open it's too transparent uh, it's uh, like how should I say? It's more like a museum thing that's still around that they are using to to socialize in. Whereas well, I would also, I would say Opus Day, at least at the upper hierarchy, is probably more of a cult too. Yeah, they are definitely a cult with an agenda that they try to implement. Absolutely. So they are more a classical conspiracy player. That's my distinction uh, when I. Mentioned. Like I would yeah. say, yeah, the Knights of Malta are more of like power brokers, whereas Opus Day is just like a straight up cult with a more of yeah. a fanatical agenda. You know, like, the the Bohemian Grove, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the same thing as the, the Knights of Saint John and many Mason orders. It doesn't mean that the Bohemian Grove is a player that is scheming and implementing stuff from their own uh, like ideology. It's more like we're an advanced uh, society club for the elite. Come here and be free and come here and be like, have a vehicle to do your stuff. Right. And then people come from maybe Opus Dei <laughs> or from Skull and Bones because Skull and Bones is more like uh, an influencer. Again, I think it's just a vehicle like um, Bohemian Grove, but in Skull and Bones, from the reports we have, they are being influenced. And I think a similar scheme to the Honey Trap, you have to, 
what is it, be nude while you're being filmed and confess all your secrets. That's a way. I think already in Skull and Bones, they start well, getting yeah, control a, over Yeah, that's, I mean, that's like a common method, too. I mean, actually, yeah. I mean, Propaganda Dewey did something similar where you had to basically turn over like blackmail material on yourself and people right. that you knew to join the order. And um, yeah. You kind of had the same thing with, uh, oh gosh, what was it? Oh, spiritual, not spiritual mobiles, moral rearmament, uh, which was the basis of the family slash fellowship and a lot of these, you know, kind of American Protestant uh, cults. Right. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Well-known trick. Yes, yes. They all want to do, uh, they all want to know about your sex life. I think it's because we today, uh, well, it's, it's starting to change in the Trump era. That's actually a good thing. But before and you're old enough to remember this. You were done for if there was any. It, it was like we had one standard for the rulers and another for human beings. But maybe not so much in France, for example. In France, you're going to be you're not necessarily going to be toppled just because they know you have a mistress. So it's kind of culturally influenced too. Mm-hmm. But it's it's at the end of the day, it's a, it's a universal method to control people. We we have the shame, especially in Christian societies, right? It would be different if it was an hedonist society. But <laughs> well, uh, it, it's interesting because I think you see that that progression in these sort of blackmail rings too. Because like the the major purpose of like the the first book, uh, the focus was really profumo. Uh, which I think was sort of a prototype of uh, Epstein's ring. I mean, of course, you have sort of guys like Roy Cohn and Thomas Corbley, who are sort of a a logical line of uh, succession to Epstein. But like, regardless, in the case of uh, the Profumo affair and the ring with that, the girls were really young. And they were specifically chosen because they could pass for teenagers. But in most cases, they were of legal age. Mm. But it's kind of like, you know, in that era, though, like you're alluding to, though, that was all it took. John Profuma. Hang on. Where did Profuma operate? Uh, what exactly do you mean? Where did he operate? Like where specifically America? in the UK? No, he was in the UK. UK. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He was a British uh, minister, uh, part of the cabinet. Okay. Um, and that was what had led essentially to uh, Macmillan's government uh, being taken down in 63. Yeah, for American listeners out there, um, in UK, up until modern times, it's like a tradition that power people are toppled by sex scandals. Like you say, it's it has to be more and more extreme these days. But yeah. like it was sufficient that there was a homosexual relationship or it was a pedophile, of course. That's the ultimate taboo, right? Definitely. But even just an extramarital or some scandal, BDSM thing, um, like the classical thing, a, a guy dies of heart attack while he's tied up in a bed, for example. <laughs> so, so this is like typical in Britain and um, to a certain extent also America, especially among Republicans it used to be. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it is interesting when I was kind of writing Perfumo because some of the stuff with this is, you know, still somewhat taboo, especially when you get into some of the really out there like S&M stuff and you know some of the occult trappings too that were brought yeah. into it and I know one of the orgies that I had read about that was tied in with uh, well I should probably I know not necessarily a lot of American listeners are familiar with the Perfumo scandal so yeah. it revolved around John Perfumo who was a minister in uh, the government of Harold Macmillan who was the Tory MP at the time or um, excuse me the Tory uh, prime minister at the time 
So he ended up having an extramarital affair with a woman named Christine Keeler, who was a, um, a dancer, something to that effect. And um, she was a friend of a quote unquote society osteopath uh, known as Stephen Ward, who also had uh, other younger women who he would uh, set up with these aristocratic and or politically connected men so that they could, you know, have fun with each other and so forth. Mm. Um, and this in and of itself would have been problematic. But another issue was that at the time, Keeler was also sleeping with a guy named Yuri Ivanov, who was a Soviet military attache and later revealed to be an <laughs> agent of GRU. No, yeah. GRU, actually. But yes, a Soviet spy, nonetheless. Don't you, don't you think he involved himself with that dude just be, uh, from a spy point? Well, I actually, I think that they intentionally had wanted Keeler to sleep with him so that they would have that to blackmail Profumo. Because you see, oh. the other thing about Profumo that really is never addressed is it ties into the stuff with Kennedy. Right. Uh, right. Kennedy had an affair actually probably an affair with two women that were part of Ward's ring. Uh, one of them was Susie Chang, I believe. Uh, I cannot remember the name of the other woman, but she was um, from Czechoslovakia and also uh, potentially had a family who had ties to Soviet intelligence services. So, yeah, it seems like there was this deliberate effort to try to get some of these prominent American officials engaged in affairs and rings uh, and also in the UK that were linked to the Soviet intelligence services. And the American ones were definitely aware of this. And uh, this is one of the things that Gannis had first gotten into and in, um, the Scrozzini papers and then Hang Up Aurelia had also gotten into. But, um, you know, there's definitely, I think, some compelling evidence that this was a bigger factor in the Kennedy assassination than a lot of people realize, because you have to sort of remember that the Perfumo affair started to blow up in the UK in the summer of 1963, a few months before the assassination and Macmillan's government had basically fallen shortly before Kennedy was murdered. So mm. there's a possibility if this stuff had gone on, some of the things had come out with Kennedy. And, you know, obviously at this point in time, it was kind of an open secret that Kennedy slept around. Um, you know, right. he had that certain something where Monroe. he could get away with it, whereas a lot of other American politicians couldn't. Mm. But now you're in a situation where he's not just having an extramarital affair, but he's also possibly plugged into a ring that's been penetrated by the Soviet intelligence services. Mm. And that is not something that the American public would forgive then, or probably still now. Mm. So that is something if it had continued to come to a head very well, could have brought Kennedy's government down as well. Right. And that's what I don't think people realize about the significance of the Perfumo affair. It took down one government in the UK and it might have forced the assassination of JFK in the United States. I mean, that's how uh, wide reaching this sex ring was. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, the Profuma, uh, the Cossens, who are the Cossens? How is it spelled? Well, it's chapter, the name of chapter six. Chapter five is Profuma. No, no, I'm not. I'm maybe not getting the pronunciation that you're saying here. Yeah, it says the cousins. It's from the honeypot. Oh, the cousins. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. 
Yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah, that was basically getting into the Americans. Um, that's sort of the, uh, specifically that's, I think how the British intelligence services refer to other counterparts in the Americans as the cousins and so right, forth. Right, right. So yeah, that was kind of bringing up, um, what was going on in the American side of things. And, uh, also specifically all the stuff with J Edgar Hoover and, um, well, see, that's kind of a thing where you get into the stuff with Epstein and how like this is connected uh, because Kennedy had potentially had this affair, you know, in 1960, shortly after he wins the presidency. And then later, um, Perfumo starts to have the affair with Keeler and uh, you know, in British circles, a lot of this stuff, there's a lot of gossip going around and what have you. Uh, so anyway, around 62 or so, an interesting guy shows up in the UK. Uh, his name is Thomas Corbally, and he's a private detective, uh, though he's done a lot of different things over the years. Uh, he was reputed to have been an OSS officer uh, during the Second World War, though that does not seem to be the case, though he did work with uh, American Army intelligence mm -hmm. and does seem to have done some work with the CIA, probably as an asset slash contract player, but not in official capacity. Mm -hmm. But he did have those kind of ties, and he also was very well connected uh, with organizations crime as well um his family had actually run detective agencies for many years and sort of going back to prohibition in the states they had actually worked uh with the mafia spying on fbi agents and stuff like that for them mm. so mm. they had this sort of long time connections so corbally he's into a a lot of stuff. He also would go on to work with Kroll Associates as well, too, which is a big uh, investigative firm to this day. They were actually the ones who were doing uh, the security at the World Trade Center uh, right. on the day of 9-11, if I'm Those not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Corbally was very well connected in a lot of circles. So he shows up in the UK and uh, Brefin's uh, Stephen Ward starts to learn about all this stuff that's going on, uh, you know, with Keeler and all the other uh, rumors about. Um, it's kind of interesting, too. At the time, he's got a flat in the UK and uh, his roommate was a guy uh, called William Mellon Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. who I'm sure people listening to this have probably heard of before. A couple of years later, uh, Mr. Billy, as he would be referred to, uh, was back in the United States, and he had become the patron of Timothy Leary. He set Leary <laughs> up at his estate in Millbrook, and then uh, later, Mr. Billy became the financier for the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, who for a time were the largest LSD syndicate in the entire world. Wow. Uh, but before all of these uh, glorious things, uh, he was sharing a flat with Thomas Corbley in the UK, and they were throwing these orgies out of it and what have you. And Stephen Ward was there, and they were getting all of this uh, dirt uh, on what was going on in the UK and also rumblings about Kennedy. And uh, when the Perfumo scandal started to break in uh, 63, uh, Billy, Mr. Billy had arranged for Corbley to speak with David Bruce, who had been a Mellon family in-law at some point. And uh, there's a lot of questions about what was said there. It certainly seems like David Bruce was informed of uh, the implications of this for the Kennedy administration, but um, he chose to say nothing about it, essentially. Mm. Uh, that was one of the reasons why there was a major national security meeting called in June when the scandal really started to break that brought in the heads of the CIA and the DIA with Kennedy to talk about it because they were so caught unaware of it. 
And a lot of it seems to be due to the fact that Bruce had said absolutely nothing about what was going on. So hmm. meanwhile, Corbally returns to the United States, just as the British authorities are starting to uh, wonder about him. And uh, he makes a beeline for his attorney and starts telling him all this stuff. And his attorney was Roy Cohn, hmm. Donald Trump's political Trump's, mentor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, who was also a really good friend of J. Edgar Hoover, uh, which was interesting because at the time, both Roy Cohn and J. Edgar Hoover were battling for their political lives uh, with Robert Kennedy. Of course, Hoover was very much in the pocket of uh, the syndicate and uh, Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, had made some effort to go after elements of the syndicate as the attorney general, which had put him in the crosshairs of uh, Hoover. Plus, he wanted to have a re-examination of the murder of his brother. Yeah, I mean, a lot of different things, but Mm. Hoover and Robert Kennedy really did not like each other, and uh, RFK and Roy Cohn did not like each other either. Mm. This went back uh, to the days of Joseph McCarthy. Um, It's not really talked about a lot, but RFK had really wanted to be McCarthy's lead attorney, but he was passed over in favor of Roy Cohn, and RFK was the Mm. kind of guy who held a grudge. Mm. Uh, Apparently, uh, when he was brought in as the attorney general by his brother. He uh, went to the Department of Justice uh, with a list of two names on it of people that he was helping on getting. The first name was Jimmy Hoffa. And the <laughs> second name was Roy Cohn. Wow. So, Why did he want Roy Cohn when they were enemies? Well, like I said, it went back to the whole thing with the McCarthy hearings and what have you. And then I think the fact that Cohn had kind of rubbed it in RFK's face that he had gotten to be McCarthy's lead attorney. Of course, it later on was major boon for RFK because he came out of the whole thing smelling like roses. Of course, Cohn did too. But uh, yeah. Mm. Okay. But anyway. Have you read Joseph Farrell's two books on McCarthy? Uh, no, I don't think so. He's delving in, uh, diving into that uh, area and what was going on behind the scenes of all that. The guy who wrote uh, the Brotherhood of the Bell books and what have you. Yeah, yeah, hmm, yeah. that's interesting. Yeah, he writes a lot about uh, similar stuff to what we're talking about. But anyway, okay. So, so- yeah, yeah. So anyway, I'm. Cohn and uh, J. Edgar Hoover really did not like uh, RFK specifically. So uh, they had some really uh, good reasons to want RFK out of the attorney generalship, to put it mildly. So Corbally shows up uh, from the UK. He and Cohn have been friends for quite a few years. He was, Cohn was uh, also, I guess, something of a mentor to Corbally. Uh, and also he had worked for Cone at various points in time as well. And yeah, he starts spilling his guts. And apparently what he told Roy Cone was, uh, is uh, still classified. Mm. So that's also interesting. Absolutely. So Cone, not really kind of known also potentially had some really damning blackmail material on the Kennedys, among others. Mm. I'm, I'm sure. Now, Corbally is a fascinating guy because he would continue to show up in uh, sex scandals for pretty much the rest of his life. Uh, Mm -hmm. During the early 90s, uh, he turned up in the Heidi Fleiss affair in Los Angeles. Uh, This involved a lot of um, Hollywood types. Fleiss was a prominent call girl who supplied uh, prostitutes for a lot of actors and that type of thing. People like Jack Nicholson, uh, Heidi Fleiss though, uh, had had an ongoing uh, relationship with uh, a producer named Robert Evans. 
who was also a close friend of uh, Thomas Corbally. Mm-hmm. And that uh, brings me to another ring that Corbally was linked to. And that was the one that involved Roy Raiden in uh, New York state in the late seventies, early 1980s, the whole thing with Monica Heller and the um, S and M scene. In fact, Corbally was uh, described as the godfather of all of that <laughs> had apparently brought it over from the UK. Right. Uh, and this goes into a lot of the weird stuff with Perfumo and this It was really very much an eyes wide shut type of thing where you had people going out to these mansions uh, outside of New York City in the countryside. And there was a lot of this weird orgies and things were being filmed and what have you. Even mosques. Mm. And uh, this was the stuff that was later linked uh, to the Son of Sam cult. Uh, of course, um, what's his name? David Berkowitz even claimed that he had been to a few of these parties that Roy Cohn had hosted. Mm. So this is all this sort of milieu that uh, Thomas Corbally was a part of. Mm. So he's uh, you know out there hanging out with Stephen Ward in the UK in the 60s. He turns up in the 70s, uh, late 70s, early 80s as part of this weird S&M scene in New York State that's linked to the Son of Sam murders. And then later, Jeez. all this stuff in LA later. So yeah. But but Roy Cohn, he isn't alive anymore, right? No, no, he died of AIDS in I think it was like 1986 or something of like AIDS, that. AIDS, of course. 86. So how much influence did he really have on Trump? Because Joseph Farrell has made a point of him being the advisor of Trump too. Yeah, I think it was definitely quite considerable. I mean, they had hooked up I think like in the early to mid seventies and the big thing with Cohn is he was the guy who really, I think brought Trump into, you know, the connections with organized crime on the one hand, because Cohn was, he was basically the, the attorney for the five families uh, for a lot of years. I mean, there were rumors that he would host, you know, meetings at the commission and all this other kind of stuff, but um, you know, he was very well connected to a lot of mafia figures and you have people like Biff Halloran, who I think was tied to either the Genovese's, the Gambinos, I can't remember which, but this wow. was the guy who did the concrete for Trump's early building projects and what have you. And yeah. uh, Biff Halloran, interestingly, was also later uh, connected uh, to the stuff in Kentucky with the company, which was a syndicate involving a lot of, uh, it was pretty much exclusively made up of ex-cops and military officers. <laughs> they were involved in smuggling cocaine and arms and stuff like that. Right. So and this is the whole thing is really deep, but yeah. Yeah, and and Vivian Webb, uh, when she, I, I saw she wrote an article where she tied in. I think the Iran Contras thing was involved too, somehow. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. No, the company definitely had links to Iran Contra and the Medellin cartel and all this other yeah. stuff. So, but anyway, you know, Roy Cohn was the guy who I think really. Uh, brought Trump into those circles. Uh, you know, he brought him into contact with people like Rupert Murdoch. And I mean, a lot of uh, politically connected figures. And I also think there's a chance too, that he might've helped uh, Trump establish ties uh, to the U S intelligence services as well. Mm. Uh, I think one of the reasons why Roy Cohn had so much power for a lot of years is he was effectively Hoover's back channel uh, to the, uh, to the mafia more or less. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think in that capacity, Trump might have worked, you know, as an FBI informant at times as well against mm-hmm. the mob. There's mm-hmm. been a lot of rumors of that for years, and it might be one of the reasons why he seemed to have had such vigorous support from certain elements within the FBI, especially, I think, around the New York field office. Yeah. So, you know, there is that kind of element as well. I mean, certainly Roy Cohn was extremely... I thought it was just that many of them are nationalistic and controlled. Well, you know, probably that too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there is that kind of element as well. But Roy Cohn, there was obviously that story about him and J. Edgar Hoover and, oh God, what was his name? Lou Rothenstein or something like that. He was... um Oh gosh, he was like some kind of liquor heir or something like that. But mm. apparently this guy and Cone and uh, Hoover had gone to um, this hotel room with uh, Lou's wife and they had started having an orgy in the bed with like these two like 18 year old blonde haired blue eyed boys. And they had tried to get her to come involved. And she was just like, no, this is really creepy. And Hoover, I should point out, had apparently come out dressed in drag or something like yeah, that yeah, and it, that's famous so yeah 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 it's quite possible that roy Cohn was close to j edgar hoover in a, a way that few people ever were to mm. put it mildly mm. but for sure he must have uh, well before we actually explore further trump and clinton and all these people and and, and Epstein, let's recap the background and i have one more question about that uh, your chapter seven is called jfk chapter eight is called coups so how are political coups involved uh, in this background there was i mean that's what i think effectively it happened in the uk i didn't really get into the jfk stuff as much um because again i think to really do justice Kennedy assassination. I would basically have to write a book exclusively yeah. about that. There's just no way you can really like touch, no. tackle it like in a simplistic no, way. So no. I just kind of <laughs> tried to focus a really narrow focus and then just sort of left it at that. But um, and, and by the way, speaking of complexities in the JFK case, uh, have you read uh, Levendas um, analysis in uh, Sinister Forces? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've read Sinister Forces. Amazing connections that. I mean, Levana just sees them, but he can't make sense of them. So it ties into everything, UFOs, you name it. It's it's so weird, everything. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so coups. What, what coups are involved in this? Well, in the case of uh, the UK, I think specifically there was a vigorous attempt here to try to force uh, Macmillan out. Uh, right, during you time. mentioned that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think this goes into the geopolitics that were playing out with like Yemen at the time, because going back, uh, with the Yemen 19- was a hot spot back then too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the early 60s. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was like right around the time when it was uh, first, you know, starting to gain its independence from the colonies and so forth. Mm. So, okay, so like at the time, you know, the UK had had a really rough uh, decade in the 1950s. You know, when the 50s had started, I mean, it was still officially like an empire, um, but there was really no illusions about that by the end of the decade. And the, <laughs> the straw that kind of broke the camel's proverbial back was the whole thing with the Suez crisis. Um, right. Basically, the United States had come in and said that we were not going to pay for the invasion. And that pretty much destroyed Britain's uh, attempts at trying to hold the Suez Canal and any real illusions of it of still being an empire, at least officially. So it didn't go over very well 
with elements uh, within the British security services, especially, uh, they did feel betrayed by some of their counterparts in the U.S. and specifically by a lot of American politicians, though, more than anything, but also their own politicians. Macmillan was really starting to draw a lot of disillusionment from the far-right elements in the Tory party, uh, kind of going into the early 60s. This was, you know, around the time when the Monday Club was set up uh, for mm-hmm. a lot of years. This was kind of the bastion of the far-right mm-hmm. in the British political establishment. And uh, kind of from an unexpected source, it seems like, uh, you know, some opposition came from uh, Macmillan's son-in-law, Julian Amory, who... Uh, have been a veteran of the special operations executive during the second world war. And as I sort of argue in the uh, book, I think that he was an element of uh, this world commerce corporation network mm. that I outline in it. And of course he did later become a chairman of the Cow. And uh, he's in general, a really interesting uh, guy as well as his family. Uh, his father, Leopold Amory, was probably one of the guys who wrote the Balfour Declaration. Mm. Uh, he had been quite a considerable Zionist. Um, mm. Julian doesn't seem to be quite as far down that road as his father, but he did have impeccable contacts in Israel. But there's another interesting thing, and that's also Julian's brother, John Amory, who was... Uh, I believe one of the only British citizens executed for treason in the aftermath of the second world war, John, despite being a quarter Jewish became a fanatical Nazi (laughs) and uh, had actually spent the latter parts of the years in Germany uh, where he was administering propaganda uh, for the Germans that was being broadcast in the UK. It was kind of like a successor to Lord hee haw or something like that. But yeah, he would go on to these, just, you know, epic rants about how Britain was under the complete control of the Jews and, mm. you know, Hitler was coming in to liberate them from the money changers and all this other kind of stuff. Mm. Uh, so anyway. Well, I mean, he, he was he's probably disillusioned from the city of London. He, he must have been in the heart well, of that. Okay, see, but here's the thing. John Amory was being used um you know, he became sexually active with older men at quite a young age i think around 12 or 13 uh, uh, when he was involved with the public school system and he was actually prostituting himself he was still a minor to uh geez. wealthy europeans and so forth as well so that's you know kind of another thing it's not really talked about a lot but i mean i've often wondered what that did to his brother julian psychologically um julian comes off as being extremely ruthless and i you know kind of wonder if that's partly due to just the fact that his brother was just so traumatized by elements of british establishment mm. but um regardless so julian we're kind of fast forwarding here to the early 60s yeah british were utterly humiliated uh by egypt and the whole thing with suez and that had led to just a fanatical obsession with getting Nazar. And they had also had to set up like a lot of their military forces in Yemen at this point in time. And, um, you know, that was really the last sort of port that they had left into um, that whole region. So they were hell bent on keeping some kind of a presence there. And Nazar had started to move in Egyptian forces and so forth, and a lot of them. Mm. And obviously, the British government, they knew they couldn't afford to do this anymore. 
uh, Amory knew that they weren't going to do anything. So he decided that he was going to take the private initiative uh, to go after Nazar. So he uh, hooked up with uh, one of his buddies, Sir David Sterling, who uh, was one of the co-founders of the Special Air Services. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was also one of the pioneers of modern day private military companies. Um, that was another one of the things that came out of this. But basically, they put together a force of uh, veterans of the SAS as mercenaries, and they got the Saudi royal family and some other investors to fund all of this. And more or less, they came up with a way that they were able to run a military operation in Yemen with almost no funding or any real control from the British government. Mm. And uh, by the time 63 had rolled around, it was highly effective, uh, even though eventually British forces so, were- so, so this is this is the playbook for what they're doing today. <laughs> yeah. And Amory was the guy who created this, essentially. Wow. So at the time, there was a lot of pressure that was being brought to stop the operations. Right. And I think that was what had led them to basically go about this blackmail ring, you know, to start- Because le- again, okay, Perfumo had- become involved with Keeler in 61 or 62, but it didn't start to come out until, and I think it was 61 and it didn't start to come out till the very end of 62. And really 63 is when it started to get pumped up. Mm. But I think people have been aware of this for a while and they had just decided to finally release all that in 63 when they started to become concerned that Macmillan was not going to go along with what they were trying to do in Yemen. Because essentially what Amory and his uh, buddies were doing was trying to give Nazar his Vietnam. And they Mm. succeeded in that. I mean, I think they managed to kill something like 10,000 Egyptian troops. And for a country that size, that's a considerable loss of forces. Mm. And to say nothing of the people that were wounded and so forth. So when you sort of look at how Israel was able to just utterly annihilate, you know, Egypt during the, the war that came in, what was it, 67 or whatever, a big part of that is because I mean the British had already done a number yeah. on the Egyptian army prior to that. So deployed them, yeah, depleted them. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot, of, you know, it's kind of like overlooked, but that was like I think a significant part of 20th century warfare. I mean, it essentially showed that you could use almost an entirely mercenary force to destroy. I mean, a national army and yeah. do it on really a very cost-effective budget. Yeah, yeah, and these networks are very fond of mercenary forces. Yeah. Well, and it's also the, the, the group that Sterling set up after that, because it had been so successful, was, I think, WatchGuard International. And this was the group that Otto Scorzini allegedly based the Paladon group, which was his own mercenary network up, off of afterwards. And they were connected to the WatchGuard group. So this was also like later. Scorzini also worked for the Nazi uh, spy master. Uh, what's his name? Borman. No, no, no. The spy master that continued. Oh, Mueller? No, that's, it- that's a secret police Gestapo. No, I'm talking about the guy who, after the war, Gellin? basically run NATO's. Galen. G- Galen. There you go. Yeah, Galen. Galen. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, well, Scorzini had already done a lot of this mercenary work. I mean, kind of on the side. Uh, of course, he had actually helped train the Egyptian forces in the first place, which was kind of funny. And then later yeah. he ended up working with uh, Sterling. But that was kind of part of the course. Scorzini actually played both sides frequently throughout the Cold War. It's like the same thing with the French in Algeria. He's providing like, what was it, the FOM with arms on the one hand, and then he's working with the OES on the other hand. And, yeah. Right, right. 
but yeah, so yeah, it was a big thing what they managed to do there in Yemen. And it's just, it's really not talked about a lot, but this was really the basis for a lot of the later British uh, private military companies like Keeney Meany and so forth. And then of course, executive outcome. And then that kind of laid the basis for, um, you know, Blackwater in the U.S. and a lot right. of these other groups. But, you know, with executive outcome, I mean, that even had the lineage to these uh, groups going back to like what Sterling had started to set up. And this was very much the method that the British had established, uh, you know, during the 60s, I think, for maintaining uh, their power as an international player. Mm. Effectively, they found that while they didn't necessarily have the funding, they did have a lot of the elite forces and the weapons and so forth. Uh, so, you know, if you can go in with these private funding sources, you know, it is possible to maintain uh, a presence as an international player. And I think that was something yeah. that they've done a lot, like in Africa, for instance, with a lot of these private forces. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. But to recap here, so the background of the whole Epstein thing is the rich tradition of honey traps in the spooks circles and like a strategy to control people. That would be correct. We've had uh, um, Catherine Orson Fitz on and she's talked about these control files, which are more important now than ever because before there were certain newspapers and stuff who wouldn't publish in some countries, it was hard to even get these things published. And even if, like Palme, the Swedish prime minister, he was caught in some scandal here. Mm -hmm. and But they managed not, this was in the 80s, I think, so, but they managed not to get it published in Sweden. So even if it was published in one country, you wouldn't necessarily hear about it in another country. But today... <laughs> The whole globe is just one thing. So, and it seems to me also that they have to go a little further, that they have to, yeah. why insist on getting minors into this? Like, Epstein would be better off if he stick to 16-year-olds as a, a bottom line. But of course it is because it's going to be much easier to control people if you all have an additional layer of something illegal, a scandal, more than just being cheating on your wife or just being a hedonist, having like, like oh, that goes to his character, right? But yeah. no, he's even, even doing it with children. That's the ultimate taboo. So we have this rich tradition of using sex and shame to control people. To uh, we see how many politicians and and uh, intel players are involved in this. So it's like a rich field. Uh, yeah, I know. But Anter Epstein, let's start about talking about him now. Sure. What do we know about him? His background. His. Uh, I mean, he's an Ameri He's American citizen, isn't he? He's not British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's an American. Although he has a dual citizenship with Israel, I think. I can't remember if he did or not. I um, think he he does. But yeah, I Which mean, is I, why many people say he's Mossad, but but that's further ahead. Let's go to the beginnings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he was brought into this uh, via the associations that Roy Cohn and Thomas Corbally had forged with the British. I mean, especially in the case of Corbally, he was sort of an international man of mystery. He was well integrated with a lot of these um, circles and so forth. And you also sort of have the presence as well with kind of ironically, I think that whole network around um, 
oh, what should we call it? Uh, Drexel Burnham Lambert and uh, Michael Milken, uh, the so-called junk bond king. Mm. Epstein knew him, so Donald Trump and um, a lot of these other guys, Roy Cohn and so forth. Uh, and another big guy as well. And a lot of this was uh, Sir James Goldsmith, uh, Sir Jimmy, uh, based out of the UK. And he had also had dealings with Corbally going back to the early 60s. He was a part of the so-called Mayfair sect. Uh, which also included David Sterling, uh, the mercenary head that I was just talking about before. Sir Jimmy uh, was one of the first guys to really back Brexit significantly, or what would become Brexit, I should say, in the UK, uh, early sponsor of the European skepticism movement in the UK and all that other kind of stuff. But he was involved uh, as a major corporate raider in the United States in the 1980s with Milken in this whole circle. And that's where I think you kind of see this progression of these guys uh, coming over, bringing a lot of these methods. And of course, I'm sure the American CIA had already picked up on a lot of this. Mm. It's hard to say. I mean, obviously, you know, we're talking about the overlap going back with the Kennedys. Mm. So again, did they possibly look at the cousins to try to help them with the entrapment on this? I mean, it happened in the U.S. soil, but this ring was uh, probably under the control of some element within the U.K. So... Mm. But obviously, at some point, I mean, Roy Cohn appears to have become a major figure in this, uh, in the American side of things. Again, it's possible because this is tied into his connections with J. Edgar Hoover. Uh, of course, Hoover was alleged to have maintained his own, what was it, personal and confidential files, I think. Yeah. Uh, since like, what, the 1920s or something like that. So Hoover was, again, another guy who had been engaged. Big player. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. a lot of this in, stuff. In, in, in blackmailing people, controlling people. Yeah. I, I guess that's why FBI was so powerful under Hoover right because of his personal not official stuff but his backroom uh, power yeah it was because i mean hoover had just yes yeah, so much power so much control over a lot of political figures because he did have all this dirt on them but then conversely you know there were rumors for years that the reasons why uh, the fbi had pretty much vigorously avoided going after the syndicate during hoover's long reign as the director is because they had blackmail material on j edgar yeah. hoover of a homosexual variety mm. so mm. it's kind of like they both had each other mm. But, um, Terror balance, as we used to call it. You know, this this kind of scorpions dance, I guess, with like the syndicates <laughs> and uh, yeah. the FBI going back into the 20s and 30s. The British had their own thing. But I mean, it seems like a lot of it started to come together during the World War II years. And specifically with, you know, the ways that the British were able to use this to manipulate uh, American political ends. And then, of course, going into the period with the early 60s, where you see all this stuff playing out out with Macmillan and JFK, and more broadly speaking, a lot of the issues of play, the issue of colonialism, the fact that a lot of the uh, the British felt that getting a more right-wing administration into office, I mean, a Texan like Lyndon Johnson, for instance, would possibly get a more favorable view towards their aspirations to maintain vestiges of colonialism. And certainly, I mean, the Americans wanted support for our own efforts in Vietnam and that type of thing. Mm. Um but yeah. So Epstein's uh, uh, background. Oh, sorry, sorry. Okay, so... Yeah. Yeah, there's the whole thing, obviously, with him at the Dalton School, where he ended up uh, what being hired by David Barr, uh, the father of uh, Trump's eventual uh, attorney general. So right. there's the oddities with that from the very beginning. 
And then, yes, getting into the 80s, uh, where he ends up in the Drexel Burnham Lambert circle with Milken. And I mean, a lot of these other power brokers in Wall Street. I mean, I think you also sort of get into the connections there uh, with what you're saying, these sort of fascist like Wall Street connections. Um, And it's interesting, too, you know, obviously, with the components of the Israelis here and uh I think something as well when you, I know you've been kind of talking about this before, but all the stuff with Borman and his network, yeah, uh, that's one of the things that was really eye-opening to me uh, when Paul Manning got into the fact that uh, there really was a consorted effort made to try to mend fences with the Israelis and to actually work with them directly. Exactly. Which they had done actually, or even under Hitler to a certain extent. Yeah. Yeah. And it's you know, a lot of people don't realize it, but the Nazis were actually really big on trying to get the, um, the Jews to return to Israel and they yeah. were, you know, major proponents of that. Yeah. So yeah, and there always has been this odd collaboration between elements of the Jewish establishment and the Nazis, and certainly in the post-war years, it became much yeah. But even even during Second World War, just to complete that by thread, is famous now, of course, because uh, certain people have talked about it. But the Zionists, they were basically giving the ghetto Jews to the Nazis. Many Zionists were picked to choose who was going to survive because they had a rat line for Jews sure. during the Nazi era where rich and powerful Jews would get out and especially um, Zionists because they controlled who could get out and not. So they were working to get as many Zionists out as possible. And of course, if you wanted to emigrate to Israel, chances were many of those would be be into it for ideological reasons. Of course, some would probably just try to get out, especially when when the real smackdown of of juice uh, took off any thing was better than staying there but yeah. yeah officially there were corporations between zionists and ss and even in the the army the german army itself there were people who were half jews quarter jews i don't know about full jews maybe they they were eradicated after a while but even uh, surviving the second world war and everything was jewish people so it's always been a little weird this it seems to me that some of the nazis were bigger on anti-semitism than others sure yeah and realpolitics at the end of the day will always determine right so if you really yeah. have the mutual interests then uh, to hell with the uh, fancy mancy ideological stuff and remember another thing Bormann wasn't yeah i was gonna say i think Bormann was among other things he was certainly i think more of a pragmatist absolutely he wasn't he wasn't big on uh, the ideology like like himmler yes he was a true believer but Bormann was into it for for the power and the money and so um after it's like i've even interviewed people who are connected to die Spinne and Everybody well, I was going to say, and also, you got to look at Scruzzini, too. He's a big guy. We've kind of been talking about this this broader network with World Commerce Corporation. And he was working with the Masson, too. Right, right. He is a big guy, but but remember, Scruzzini was, he was a big player in that he was involved in a lot of stuff, but he was so far down the hierarchy that that's why he was a, a go-to man, a man they could send around, right? He wasn't the one sitting behind the... Uh, 
<laughs> in a, in a smoke from yeah back he room. was more of the front man he was more the, of a front he was man. the outer head of the order something like yeah that. Uh, something like that so but it is explicitly written i think it's uh, by farago or manning that at some point they just realize okay okay israel is now a power player on the scene so uh, let's just they, they actually made some kind of peace deal where the last man they were going to go after was um, Eichmann and of course Simon Wiesenthal who knew about the Bormann Brotherhood and complained that they went go after Bormann he also tried to whistleblow about this he complained that it's a deal they threw these guys to the dogs because Eichmann had fallen in grace within the Exile Nazis themselves. He was squeezed out. He was just a poor factory worker at that point, okay. which is why they threw him to the wolves. And that was the deal. He was the last one to go. After that, they wouldn't go after anymore because there were many, many more uh, still around uh, with a lot of power. So they didn't want to have that annoying, uh, you know, a Mossad troop on their back. So I suppose if you're Israel, you get the notice off your back. Like you said, Otto Skoseni was involved with the Egyptians. They tried to whip the Arabs uh, up against the Israelis, right? And uh, yeah, yeah. so, uh, yeah, there would be interest. Plus, the Israelis were so fascist themselves at this point. If you look at Zionism, it's basically just a Jewish version of Nazism in, in many respects. Yeah. Many similarities. So, so you have one fascist group there that thinks we are the chosen one. Then you have another fascist group in Argentina, basically, but it's extraterritorial, of course. But at least back then, they were mainly local headquarters in Argentina. And they were, to some extent, also thinking they were the chosen one, although how much after Hitler is gone, hard to tell. But they had a thing in common that they wanted to become a new power player on the scene. Yeah, sure. And so, but they, okay, this is a detour. But then, Epstein, do you think he was connected to to Israeli intelligence too? Oh, yeah, I definitely do, especially when you look at the connections also with the Maxwell family and whatnot. Um, but again, I have to really point this out with Robert Maxwell, because inevitably, I mean, this is a figure we've sort of, you know, got to get into with all of this. Yep. Maxwell, again, the book on him that most people tend to cite, which uh, puts into perspective the uh, his ties to the intelligence services is the one that uh, Gordon Thomas co-wrote, uh, gosh, with the other author whose name escapes me now at the moment. But Thomas A is, in my opinion, pragmatic. Um, you know, certainly I think uh, Hank Alperelia did an excellent job and a terrible mistake of pointing out uh, many of the flaws in Thomas's work on MK Ultra and Project's Artichoke. In fact, um, he was the uh, one more than anybody who spread the notion that Artichoke was rolled into MK Ultra in the 1950s, which in point of fact never happened. And in fact, also Artichoke continued concurrently with MK Ultra until around 1963. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of stuff that Thomas has said that, you know, is rather dubious. It's never been confirmed by anybody uh, with any documentation. And certainly I'm not questioning that Thomas did have you know, I mean, solid sources in the U.S. intelligence community, uh, but I am questioning whether or not he vetted what they were telling him as thoroughly as he should have, uh, because certainly some of the stuff has been 
badly contradicted by other accounts and uh, documentation that's been declassified and a lot of other things that are arguably much more credible than uh, his anonymous sources and a lot of these things. So anyway, Thomas has done some research that is not always of the highest quality, in my opinion, in the first place, and is also, I would say, given a very slanted view on certain things. Mm -hmm. So in his account of Maxwell, uh, he almost in passing mentions his ties to British intelligence. Uh, but specifically, the guy who really you know, set Maxwell up initially as a major uh, publisher and so forth in the UK was a guy that we've already talked about before, Sir Charles Hambro, one of the guys who helped set up the World Commerce Corporation, who was involved mm. in all this stuff with Stevenson and so forth, and who was also a major banking figure. This was the guy who basically helped arrange Maxwell to get his own publishing company in the early days. And I mean, almost all of the guys surrounding Maxwell uh, in the early part were veterans of the special operations executive, including, if I remember correctly, his secretary, who he was having an affair with. Mm. So Maxwell, I think around 1954, is able to go, you know, meet with like the heads of the KGB in the Soviet Union and MI5, everybody knows about this. Okay. And they go and they ask, I mean, I think it was his secretary again, MI6 does. I mean, if he was loyal or not, and they say, yeah, of course he is. You know, we've been backing him this whole time. So the British knew for years that Maxwell was meeting with extremely senior figures of, uh, within the Soviet intelligence apparatus. Nobody did anything about this. And then later he establishes all of these links with the Israelis as well, uh, which again tends to make me think that uh, throughout most of this time. Yeah, he's, he's suspected of being Mossad. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, again, kind of going back though, he was linked to the British before he was linked to any of these other intelligence services. Right, right. And while he definitely screwed over uh, the Americans in a lot of cases, I mean, most of the stuff that he did really didn't have any bearing against the UK. So and I think this is a component about a lot of this that people don't really grasp. And this isn't to say that Maxwell was not in deep with the Mossad later on. I mean, he definitely was. Though, again, I, I tend to think Maxwell was certainly more of a mercenary figure than somebody who was a staunch um, idealist. Let's just put it at that. Right. But um, certainly one of the things with Maxwell, and this is also another element with Epstein that's really interesting, that's not really talked about a lot, is Robert Maxwell's bread and butter really seems to have been, you know, scientific espionage. Uh, mm. Certainly a lot of his early publishing efforts were mainly centered around scientific publications. And specifically, he was able to procure right on most of the uh, scientific papers that the Soviet Union was allowing to be published in the West. That was a big part of what his uh, meetings with the KGB around 54 had been about. Mm. Uh, and I think this is another one of the reasons why the British were encouraging this kind of behavior, because this was going back to the time when the UK didn't have the hydrogen bomb, the United States was reluctant to share the technology with them. So yeah. it's often made me wonder if they had sort of sent uh, Captain Bob out there to uh, see if maybe the Soviets would give them a little pointers if you know, maybe we talked a bit about some of the NSA uh, tech that we were getting or that the UK was uh, getting. So mm. who knows? But there's a lot of uh, schemes going on with that. 
Obviously, Maxwell later came to a lot of infamy for his role in the Promise scandal. And I mean, the backdoor that the Israelis were able to set up in a lot of that software and so forth. So, I mean, he's mm. continuing this all the way up to the 1980s. Also, let me just point out that uh, we're talking about the father of Ghislaine or Ghislaine yeah, Maxwell, which, which is now on trial and is um, suspected to be Epstein's handler and girlfriend. So that, that's why he's so relevant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, that he has had a lot of, that Robert Maxwell did have a lot of long-time ties to the scientific community. And if I remember correctly, I think several of his kids have continued to fund a lot of this research as well. Mm. But this is why it's so interesting to me that um, I think for the last decade or so of Epstein's life, he had principally become a venture capitalist for scientific research. Mm. And a lot of this stuff was kind of getting into along the lines of things that could be classified as eugenics and what have you. But certainly he had become very well connected in scientific circles. And he was hosting people like Stephen Hawkins and a lot of other really prominent uh, mm. TED Talk type scientists in the latter part of his life. We're, we're talking transhumanist types. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of the transhumanist types, certainly. Mm. Which again... I think brings up an element of this network that really has not been explored, but I think is relevant Yeah, because again, okay, it's, it's not just, you know, the child sex trafficking that Epstein was involved in as horrendous as that was, but there's also a lot of evidence that he was involved in arms trafficking going back uh, to the early 1980s. Another guy that he was involved with was Sir uh, Desmond Lee, uh, Lease, I think his name was. I mean, he was another guy who was major involved in arm trafficking on the UK end in the Iran Contra era. So Epstein was involved in a lot of trafficking in different uh, capacities, which was probably generating a lot of illicit funds, mm. which again is why it's so interesting that he becomes a venture capitalist for scientific research and specifically a lot of this really weird kind of transhumanist type of stuff as well. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why you don't hear a lot about like his lab and or his uh, ranch, rather, <laughs> Freudian slip there, his ranch in New Mexico. Because if you know a lot about New Mexico, a lot of weird stuff goes on there. Uh, of course, this is where, what is it, Los Alamos is located. Right. Uh, a lot of black research is done there, but also Kirkland Air Force Base. That's actually a major testing facility for a lot of the Air Force's non-lethal weapons, especially related to like microwaves and lasers and that kind ah. of thing. A lot of this stuff plays into the Benowitz affair and that type of stuff. So right. a lot of black research goes on there. Epstein happens to have this ranch located there. It appears to have underground facilities of all of his properties. You just don't really seem to hear a lot about it. Mm. Um, yeah. Like I said, it does make me wonder how much of like what Epstein was doing in the latter part of his life was. But, but was he born into this world or did he? No, no, he does not seem to have been born into it. He just seems like a guy who was able to kind of claw his way to the top. Right. Right. So, you know, I imagine he was probably especially ruthless, uh, maybe even more so than some of these other figures that we've been talking about. And he must have had certain qualities that they needed, like he probably was very social. 
Yeah. It's just, again, that's one of the really enigmatic things about him and was how he was able to establish all of these connections. Um, yeah. First in Wall, I mean, initially with the Dalton School thing, then later in Wall Street and part of the sort of milk and syrup. Even if it's just a, a symbolic figurehead, mm-hmm. whoever chose him must have chosen him for a reason. Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's so, just, and of course, he ends up like uh, running the fortune for Lex Wesner, and you know, again, this Brits Epstein and in, involved in Ponzi schemes and and lots of. Well, also, it puts him in the milieu with Ohio because again, Ohio is not really talked about, but it's a major power state in the U.S. I mean, especially really? around the Cincinnati area. Oh yeah, 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 wow. yeah. Uh, again, it's a major area for a lot of organized crime. Cincinnati has just got all kinds of just weird occult stuff uh, going on around it. I mean, going back to sort of like the Society of Cincinnati and then in modern day with some of the Kenneth Grant circles that we were kind of talking about before, like with the Bay yeah. Cabal, uh, Michael Kino I was running around there. But there's all kinds of insane stuff with Ohio. And that's another interesting thing about all the areas Epstein ends up having properties at or has locations where he lives at ohio was one uh around lex wesner's estate if i remember correctly which again is another element a lot of people don't talk about obviously new york uh clearly that's a major power center miami is another one which is also big for trafficking and so forth as is ohio and then of course new mexico as i was just alluding to lots of really weird stuff goes on in new mexico Hmm. um so yeah he he ends up with a lot of uh very interestingly uh placed locations across the u.s and then obviously um what is it? Little St. James or whatever his island was called in the Caribbean. So, All right. <laughs> so the people he has been connected to, you mentioned now some from his background, but it's going to be interesting to try to figure out what groups or circles is behind him. But also, who did he? Um, I mean, we all know about Bill Gates, Melinda Gates. She divorced Bill Gates now simply because of his connections to Epstein. And his lame excuse is that Epstein, we're going to get him the Nobel Peace Prize. (laughs) (laughs) And then I'm starting to look at what? What connections do Epstein have to that? Turns out everybody has been... Yeah, it turns out two people on the... We put politicians on that committee, right? And they've been on his planes. So... Obviously, he he must have had some blackmail files on a Norwegian or, or a couple of Norwegian politicians. Okay, okay. So, although, of course, I don't buy Bill Gates' excuse for that's why he met him, but I'm pretty sure that was also one of the topics on the table <laughs> between them. Uh, so that's one name. And we have Trump. Trump has been downplayed and Bill uh, Clinton has been upplayed. But both of them deserves to be floating around as solid names. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Right. Yes. You can go into a little of this. Uh, and, and of course, Alan Dershowitz, who I believe was in charge under the Trump regime, was in charge of the somehow was involved, at least in the court cases against Epstein or the, um, what you say, indictments. And then you have, of course, Prince Andrew, who is one of the most famous, too. You want to go into a little uh, around these things? Sure. Well, see, and that was what had led me uh, to focus in on the Perfumo scandal after I had started to look at some of the names and the 
you know, Epstein's black book, quote unquote. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised by how many of the British ones were families who had also been involved in Profumo. Uh, the Astor family was one uh, where Epstein clearly seems to have known a couple of members of the family. He knew a descendant of the Hambro family. Uh, the Kennedys were, of course, another one who turned up in the book. Uh, I think he knew a couple of the Macmillan family members. Uh but one of the really interesting ones was the Frazier family, too, who he seems to have known a few members of. Uh, the Frasers are really interesting. This is a specifically Clan Frazier of Lavat. Um, mm. I don't know if you're an Outlander fan, but that was actually the uh, clan that Jamie's a member of, uh, for those of you. Uh, <laughs> right. On a more kind of, you'll probably know a little bit about this, but they were uh, actually the family who owned a lot of the uh, the land around Loch Ness, and specifically they had right. built the Lolskin, uh, which Crowley had later uh, bought, yeah, and yeah. Uh, he was also a, a neighbor of the Frasers uh, for a while as well right. during this period. So, and then they also played a big role in setting up modern day special forces. Uh, Sir David Sterling, who I talked about a little bit before was also a member of clan Fraser of Lovett. Huh. Um, but another guy who's really interesting was Hugh Fraser, who was a close friend of Julian Amory and a family member of uh, Sir David and also involved in all the uh, shenanigans in Yemen and so forth. Hmm. But he seems to have been a major figure in leaking the stuff with Perfumo and instigating the scandal and Macmillan's downfall. So it's really interesting that it seems like, a, at least if I remember correctly, one of his kids also turns up in the... Uh, in Epstein's Black Book. So I was really struck by the fact that you did seem to have this almost intergenerational thing with so many of these families that had shown up in the Perfumo scandal and the British end and to some extent the American end who had continued on Lanner Day, uh, you know, showing up in the stuff that Epstein was doing. Mm. Maybe if they control one representative of the family, they can force that member to get younger members of the family when they grow up to come into the same traps. So they have like generational bonds, chains, controls over powerful yeah, families. Yeah, well, I definitely think it does indicate that there is something to this this eyes wide shite notion of this intergenerational families going to these sex parties. And yeah, this is kind of how you're read in when you get to a certain age. <laughs> mm. It becomes like an elite uh, initiation. <laughs> yeah, 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 certainly. But uh, yeah, so so we see connections between Abstein and a lot of people. But I'm I'm more curious about how Abstein rose to this position because we know he was involved in shady Wall Street's uh, hedge funds and stuff like that, and we also know that. Already back in 2005, I think, was the first court case against him. So it's not like it was anything new that happened, like right before COVID. Mm -hmm. So uh, this has been, he, he's been like exposed for a long time, but he was protected, wasn't he? Yeah, and it is interesting why at a certain point in time, the scandal really started to break as well. Uh, I do think some of it might have been tied into the stuff with the election. And of course, you would also around this time had all the stuff of the Wienergate breakout and what have you. I mean, I'm trying to... Anthony Wiener? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know Elliot Spitzer was connected to Abstein. I don't know if Wiener was. 
I wouldn't uh, surprise yeah, me. Yeah, Spitzer was. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know if Wiener was directly connected. I'm just saying, though, that this was around the time where, because like you were saying, I mean, it seems like the, the stuff with the Clintons has really been upplayed. And I, in, in general as well, and I think that Epstein probably had more connections uh, to the Democratic Party. I mean, again, this isn't to say that the Republicans don't do this as much, possibly even more than the I Democrats. mean it's it's just two fronts of the same party at the end of the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think though specifically though Epstein was tasked more so with, you know, managing the democratic side mm, of the mm, thing. So, mm. um that's where a lot of his blackmail material probably was and again, you know, I think for various reasons some people wanted a change in regimes after 2 years of Obama, so that might have been one of the reasons why the Epstein stuff was allowed to surface there for a time mm. there was also who knows it might have been something related to the thing with jimmy savile as well and the uk yeah again i don't know if there was a direct connection between epstein and jimmy savile i haven't looked into that as much as i would like to at this point wouldn't surprise but, me uh, it had certainly had i think you know solidified in a lot of people's minds the fact that there really is such a thing as these elite pedophile rings yeah Whereas up to that point, uh, it had been something that I think the public at large had been able to kind of dismiss. Uh, yeah, then, uh, uh, Pizzagate didn't help. But um, if you see... Yes, yeah, so that's, that's where I definitely quibble with Alex a little bit on that. Right. You mean Alex Akira is not Alex Jones. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, but the thing is... The, the Epstein thing looks as if it's the cleanest of these things. Uh, I've said this before in other shows, but I have to ask you to... Are you aware of the Dr. Phil episode where he took in? Um, it was supposed you, uh, you know how the Dr. Phil show operates, right? It's a, one of the biggest daytime yeah, shows. Yeah, 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 yeah. My mom was a big Dr. Phil yeah. fan. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, when he has a theme, it can go for weeks. And if he has a theme, like a subject that is going to be like, a, is going to occupy the shows for a while, he invests a lot of money into it. So he got this woman on who had grown up in um, pre, uh, like in a sex prison so to speak in, in like she was grown up to be a sex slave of the elite and i'm not sure if you're aware of the belgian case um alex sakiris interviewed a survivor of that one very famous anel kalukas are you aware of that one what was the belgian case again uh, well, the victim is she. Her name is Annika Lucas. So if you Google her, you'll see. Uh, th this was like yeah. Um, I I'm not. I've heard the name, but I'm not super familiar with the details right now. Okay, so this is an established thing that everyone can look up, and this is the classical thing, like babies and small children and stuff like that, like the really raw stuff where they kill people. And there's also Satanist elements. Whereas uh, the Epstein thing is a little milder, like the adolescence, etc. So I wonder if there's levels to it. What Dr. Phil did, he took in this woman who was not like she didn't behave like a normal human being because she's grown up in uh, trapped in this thing. And she was more like Anna Galukas that level yeah and they talk about international global elites coming in in airplanes and you know private islands and uh, like they're breeding people in captivity to become tools for for these psychopaths this is at that level and she had to have like an fbi agent there were fbi agents at stage with this woman together with uh, 
Dr. Phil. So this was going to be a big deal, right? And then it was just one episode. And the episode is almost impossible to track down because I don't pay for the Dr. Phil stuff. So I um, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> have to look at the internet like everything else. And this was wiped clean everywhere. It was so hard. To, I don't know how it is now. I eventually managed to reconstruct the episode by seeing one clip here, one clip there, one clip here, one clip there. But I don't know what happened there. This is my little conspiracy hunch that it was supposed to be a big thing and a follow-up and... Uh, Phil was going to protect her, but I, I think Phil stepped in it. I think he thought he had a great uh, revelation here and didn't realize how deep it goes and how connected people are and that, that it was just removed. Yes. And so we have fragmented indications like this one. And I, I just scratched the surface, of course. And like the Annika Lucas case, where we see that there is more sinister forces involved because there is still the same level elite as the Epstein thing. But now it's the Pizzagate kind of <laughs> contacts, if you see what I mean. <laughs> and yeah, that's, well, yeah, go on. Well, yeah, I think there are different levels to it. And it's sort of something I've gone back and forth on, but... I do think that there is at times this this ritualism used in these types of things, though I also think it's probably important to emphasize that probably a fair amount of people, you know, who appear in the regalia and stuff for this don't actually believe in it. I actually think yeah, that, I mean I mean it's like a party, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not just that, but I actually think to some extent too, like the ritualism might have actually been incorporated in some instances to help discredit the witnesses. Right, right. If anybody wanted to come forward, because it's like, again, you know, if you come forward and say, well, I was, you know, sexually assaulted by a powerful man, especially in this day and age, it, it's mm. something that people would at least give some thought to. But if you say that, well, he came out in a black cloak and he wanted to do an occult ritual with me. And then he brought out a kid to sacrifice or something. I mean, I'm, right, I'm yeah. probably getting a little off the deep in there, but you get the picture. Like when you start talking Satanic about like, panic, yeah, yeah, yeah. People are just, no, no, this is nonsense. They wouldn't do something like that. Mm. So yeah, I do think there is that element where like, yeah, you know, we'll put on a show for the victims and this is another thing. Well, if they come forward and start telling people about this shit, they're going to sound absolutely ridiculous and no yeah. one's going to believe them. Yeah. But again, that's not to say that there are not people involved in this who do take this stuff seriously and who have incorporated their serious efforts into these uh, these shenanigans. But in beyond that, though, and this is something I think you were getting at before, I had always been kind of really dubious of this notion of this you know, kind of intergenerational breeding or what have you. Um, for these kinds of rings. Um, yeah. But then, Al, I started to look at fundamentalist Mormonism and I actually became a convert to this. I don't know, you know, if you follow like a lot of this sort of stuff, but it's really weird. I mean, of course, these are the groups of Mormons that still practice uh, polygamy. Right. And of course, there are several major cults uh, that are active in modern day U.S. and Mexico uh, that are essentially, you know, run by these different families. I mean, it's almost like more or less organized crime syndicates. You've got like the Can you name some of these cults? Yeah, yeah. So I'm getting ready to. There's the All Reds, there's the LeBarons, there's the uh, Kingstons, and then there's the FLDS, uh, which is previously under the leadership of the Jeffs family. That would be Warren Jeffs. Hmm. Okay. So. And there's a lot of issues with this. So first off, it's pretty common 
there's only okay so first off there's only so many families that are involved in these polygamous circles in the first place so there's a lot of inbreeding right. to be pretty blunt about this yeah. there's also a lot of cases where the kids are being married uh before they're um of age and uh, some accounts i mean people have married kids as young as 12 or 13 years old in these circles and what have you so there's a lot of this just weird stuff where you have these different families getting together and they're basically marrying their daughters off while they're still under the age of 18 to men that are in their 40s and 50s and who in in some cases or even their fucking uncles mm. so it, it's creepy it, it's yeah. really creepy and then on top of that you have another issue with this okay so in an ideal fundamentalist mormon family you've got the husband and he's got to have eight wives but again these communities are really closed and in nature you know you tend to have a 50 50 ratio of men to women so you've got to come up with ways on the one hand to get women into these groups. And that's led to some <laughs> creative solutions. Uh, Elizabeth Smart, Google that. You can find mm -hmm. how some of this stuff has been addressed. Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, uh, another solution is to kick a lot of the young men out of the cult. Right. And this is usually really traumatic because... A lot of them, you know, have no life skills. They were brought up in a cult. In a lot of cases, they're basically given the clothes on their back, maybe a few other changes by their parents. They're driven away from the cult compound. They're left by the side of the road and they're told to never come back. Mm. Okay. And this became a phenomenon uh, within these circles that are known as the Lost Boys. And a lot of them, incidentally, this is all, many of these cults are based out of the Southwest. And incidentally, a lot of these boys end up going into prostitution around Las Vegas, mm. which is really interesting. Mm. So anyway, you've got all this kind of weird stuff going on. And then when you start looking at these circles closer, you see some other weird stuff. So you got the LeBaron family in Mexico. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, the patriarch of this well, I shouldn't say patriarch. One of the vying patriarchs was a guy called Ervo LeBaron who uh, has gotten the, uh, the glorious nickname of the Mormon Manson, which is pretty accurate. Uh, his family murdered around 40 people or so, at least Jeez. what we know officially. And the murders continued well after Irville died himself, which is another interesting thing. Um, but yeah, so anyway, they had a family compound set up in Mexico, Colonia La Baron. And uh, in the late 1950s, they got a really interesting convert come join them. He was a guy called Earl Jensen. Earl decided after he had retired to go to a place in Mexico with no running water or electricity and which the nearest doctor was, I think, 40 miles away. Previously, he had been a CIA officer with a specialty <laughs> in skullduggery and electronics. Right. So he ends up joining this cult and then he gives his 13 year old daughter to Ervil LeBaron to be one of his plural wives. Okay. Uh, uh. So a couple of years later, Ervil LeBaron, you know, goes on this killing spree. He starts to traffic arms between the U S and Mexico. Uh, and this is all during the time frame from the late 1960s to the seventies, where there's a consorted effort to destabilize Mexico. This is when you've got the white brigades being set up by the DFS. A lot of people are being murdered as part of the dirty war in the Southern part of the state. And Ervil's around here working with groups like the Aryan nations and the Minutemen and the 
the United States to help bring <laughs> arms into Mexico. Of course. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the while, he's got all of these child brides that he's uh, doling out to his followers and stuff like that. And then later, you know, fast forward um, into the 21st century, the family's still a powerhouse in Mexico. Mm. In fact, they've got members who are in the Senate or their equivalent there and so forth. They're close to Colonia Juarez, where members of Mitt Romney's family are based out of. I was going to ask, is Romney involved? <laughs> oh, yeah, they go play golf with Mitt Romney of and course. what have you. Of course. So, yeah, anyway, uh, the LeBarons around 2009, they get into a dispute with the drug cartels. Uh, the drug cartels kidnapped uh, one of their guys. They got him back, and then they killed two LeBarons. So the LeBarons had the Mexican army brought out to guard their compound, and they had Vice make a documentary. It's uh, what was it? The Mexican Mormon War or something like that, uh, mm. where the members of the LeBaron family come out and say straight up, we were going to kill 10 members of the cartels for every one of our guys that they killed. But we decided to try a little bit milder approach. For the time being. Uh, he also, you know, brags about how like they're trafficking arms into Mexico still to help arm up the colony and what have you. And yeah, it's really wonderful. So anyway, um, fast forward to a couple of years later, some interesting stuff happens with the LeBarons. First, there's the massacre in 2009 or 2019, rather. Uh, this is where there's the convoy uh, driving along. Uh, I think it was from Sedona to Chihuahua to Colonial LeBaron, I believe, for a wedding. They're ambushed by a drug cartel. It's nothing but women and children. They're unarmed. Uh, they kill everybody. In fact, they burn some of the kids alive. Uh, this was used as an incident. Uh, Donald Trump had tried to raise it as a possibility to deploy Mexican special force, or excuse me, U.S. special forces into Mexico. Mm. Lots of interesting stuff about that. So it was becoming a big media thing, and then it died down. And this kind of coincided when it started to come out that um, one of the people that the LeBaron family had been working with was Keith Ranieri of Nexium. In fact, they were actually procuring girls for Nexium and sending them up to some of Ranieri's uh, places in upstate New York. Hmm. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting that they turn up there, you know, getting girls for Nexium hmm. at the same time when they're attracted for some weird reason by a drug cartel who go out of their way to kill unarmed women and children. Hmm. Uh, again, uh, we have fascist weed connections too. I, I think the relationship between sexual perversions and, and fascism is um, Willem Roche wrote about it in the function of the orgasm he argued basically to popularize psychologize this that the more inhibited you are sexually the more you are drawn to fascism I guess the the the, the opposite would be like a, you know the liberated hippie you know oh free sex and nakedness and whatever right and then <laughs> politically they become anarchists whereas if you go to the other direction, the more that's why Catholics too, I think, figure so strongly here. I think it's more this; it's more a cultural identifier marker that fascism, sexual scandals, Catholicism, these things pop up in the same circles. I don't think so much because the top of the Nazis and the top of the Catholics and the, you know the top of these networks are sitting down and deliberately mixing it. I think it's because it's the same people who, oh, now I'm an initiate of Opus Dei, 
Now I'm uh, meeting the British royal family because we, after all, at the end of the day, we talk about this 1% of the world, if even that, maybe 0.1. And they would have some cultural overlappings and identifications that this is what they're exposed to. This is what they are fraternizing with, if you see what I mean. That's my attempt to give it like a sociological spin. Yeah. Well, also, too, I wanted to make the point right quick that I was getting at with the LeBarons, because I think in these cases with these these fundamentalist Mormon cults, a lot of times it is this generational thing with incest and these child brides and stuff. But there is Mm. this intersection. Like I said, you've got Mitt Romney's uh, family. Romney's are royalty within Mormon communities right there next to them. They've got like a CIA officer, you know, living on the compound, giving them his daughter to join the family cult. Mm. So there is this weird intersection with a lot of prominent people with intelligence circles. And this is why we're like, you know, for years, I'd really question the notion. I mean, it is possible that you did have possibly these intergenerational cults or something, but when you look at this kind of stuff, if anything, it's almost remarkably open, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it was the same in Belgium, the Annika Lucas thing. It was powerful politicians and businessmen and Intel players. Those are the three levels of of the society where they recruit these people and Epstein knew how to exploit it to the full extent by the way i think uh, you you're such a treasure trove of information and and we have just scratched the surface and time has flied at least we should take a break now i think oh yeah 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 um sure now i was going to wonder how much longer you went to go because we've been going yeah so i think we should make a part two where we continue where we left off Oh, yeah, no, I'd absolutely love to. And this has definitely been a fascinating discussion. Because you see how it went, right? Time just flies. But fortunately, we can have shows for five, six hours. Because I agree with you. We have to go into the background of stuff. And uh, then um, that becomes like an hour. I mean, it became a book in itself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. (laughs) So then I I suggest for part two, we can continue just where we left off. We go more into Epstein. We go more into the court cases. Who who tries to to quench this thing because obviously someone is monitoring it. And uh, I, I think actually Bill Gates is a big player in that because he's, he spent so much money on managing his image and uh, you know he's invested big time in media, not just tech. Everybody knows he's invested in science. And yeah, no, tech, I know. It was, but, it was like, what was like around the early knots or something? I think it was when he started putting a shit ton of money into like media. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah, no, it doesn't. Uh, he's been a darling of the media for so long. Mm. You, you mentioned the Democrats was big. Uh, I think Bill Gates is a part of that. And even Trump, because remember, Trump was a Democrat. Yeah, he before. was a Democrat, yeah, yeah, for years and years. I think, yeah, that's probably why Epstein had so many connections with him. If I'm not mistaken, I think Roy Cohn was actually a registered Democrat for a lot of years. Yeah. But again, I should sort of point out, in New York, especially like New York City, yeah. like you pretty much have to be like a registered <laughs> yeah. Democrat. Like the Republicans have no power like whatsoever there. So yeah. it's like California. Yeah. So, I mean, it's being a Democrat in New York City is a lot different than being a Democrat in other places. So, uh, yeah. Uh, and you have to have ties to the mafia too, I think, <laughs> at least before you used it. Okay, that's great, Stephen. Then we officially take a break now. Yeah, that should be fine. Yep, yep, indeed. All right, Al. Perfect.
All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the paid link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.